Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Michael Papinchak Show. I am your host, Michael Papinchak. Today, this is a special episode. I am uh, joined by my friend, Dean. We are going to be discussing the book, Mastery, The Keys to Success and Long-Term Fulfillment by George Leonard. This is a book that, uh, actually, before we even start, how did you come across this book? Like, sure. like how this book come into your life? Sure. Um, embarrassingly enough, uh, this was uh, a TikTok recommendation, of course. Um, I, the I, social media engine of the world right now. I actually have a book on my bookshelf that I discovered via TikTok. Of course. And I started reading it. And it's very, it's a book about, like, um, addiction. It's very interesting. Absolutely. Very interesting book. So that is that is quite um uh, interesting. T- TikTok does have its good points sometimes. There are certain parts of TikTok that do yield very nice results, like yes. some, some book clubs. All right, so George Leonard, just a, um, a little background, born in 1923, passed away in 2010 from Mill Valley, California, right outside of San Francisco. He went to the University of North Carolina. He was a pilot in the U.S. Army Air Corps. He also, and he discusses this uh, in, in this book, Mastery, and has another book on this subject. He, is a, he was a fifth-degree black belt in Aikido, which he, he states is usually considered the most difficult martial art of all time. And uh, he wrote about education and human, and human potential, which this book obviously deals with. And between 1958 and 2001, he wrote 12 books and became a best-selling author. And The Way of Aikido, I think, was the, you know, that, that came after this book. I think so. Yeah, and that was, you know, kind of one of his, uh, you know, major uh, uh, publications. And just to give people kind of an overview of the book, I thought I would read the back flap uh, just to kind of give people an understanding because we're going to be discussing a very specific part of the book, uh, not necessarily going over the whole thing, though that could happen while the conversation um, evolves. So the the back flap says, Drawing on Zen philosophy and his experience in the martial art of Aikido, best-selling author George Leonard shows how the process of mastery can help us attain a higher level of excellence and a deeper sense of satisfaction and fulfillment in our daily lives. Whether you're seeking to improve your career or your intimate relationships, increase self-esteem or create harmony within yourself, this inspiring prescriptive guide will help you master anything you choose and achieve success in all areas of life. So when you were watching that TikTok video, what what about it like made you think, I'm going to read that book. You know, it's so funny because now that you read the the kind of the introduction to the book that's on the back. Yeah. Um, it screams 1991 when the book was released. Yes. It sounds like an infomercial. Yes. Like, are you ready to make your life better? Yes. Um, so that definitely was not the reason why I got addicted to the book and why I was so gravitated towards it. And it was specifically because of the keys to mastery. Okay. So what it was was somebody was talking about uh, a very similar event that I went through, which was in January of this year. So in 2022 in January, I went through a phase where I think it was about two or three weeks where I felt a really terrible imposter syndrome. Are you familiar with that? Mm. Imposter syndrome, basically, um, not to give you the textbook definition of it, is the feeling that you do not belong professionally or, you know, kind of in your own state of where you are. So for me, it was exclusively with work. I felt really... Um, uneducated, unable to perform my job. I moved to a new job, moved to a new kind of career path within my industry. And I was around some really smart people that were doing some amazing things. And I, of course, being the new guy on the chopping block, I felt like an absolute, you know, 
new kid. Okay. So, All right. So I I was going through some really terrible times trying to deal with anxiety and whatnot, and this okay. book appeared basically. So this is what life threw at me. Of course, yeah. Um, and what I really liked about it, and I kind of I wrote you know in my notes about this book in preparation to talk about it, was specifically some of the things that why I read it so quickly mm-hmm. and my ingestion of it was like within a day. Sure. Um, so I think what I liked about it, you know, just kind of set the the listener up was the, the ticket to mastery isn't exclusive to anybody yes. that you don't have to be born with being a master at something. Of course. And, yeah. And what's cool about this book and the introduction of it and not necessarily the, the part that you read, but the first, you know, kind of part, which is the master's journey. Mm-hmm. It talks about just, you know, examples of, of different professional athletes. He used the Seahawks, um, football player, uh, Steve, uh, Largent mm-hmm. and how he, you know, against all odds, you know, he was somebody that was, um, suffering from sleep deprivation, struggling to try to financially keep his mother and, uh, three younger brothers afloat while okay. trying to break into the NFL basically. And it's like Joe Schmo, it's like nobody. Right. Mm-hmm. And, he became a master because he spent all this time after the game on the field, just imagining winning and yes. being within that headspace. Yes. So it could literally, it's attainable by anybody, which is yes. why I loved that introduction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, the the definition right on, I, you know, it's not page one, it's page like XI or, or sure. something, but you know, like the like intro to the book. Uh, let me see. So yes, XI. I don't know how I am. I remembered that. There but you go. It was on page. So the, the the definition of mastery that he gives is the mysterious process during which what is at first difficult becomes progressively easier and more pleasurable through practice. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's kind of just so people are on board, kind of with with his his definition yeah. per the first kind of page of content for this book after the acknowledgements. And what he does, and, and he talks about the mastery curve, mm-hmm. which is not a linear line. What basically yeah. that means, if you were kind of thinking in your head about a uh, just a, a graph, right? Mm-hmm. It's not a straight line that goes from the bottom left corner to the top right. So it's not just a straight line that goes up into the air. It goes up and down. Yes. Right? There's ebbs and flows. There's valleys. Mm-hmm. There's peaks. There's plateaus. Yeah. And he specifically talks about those plateaus, yes. which is the part of the chapter that one I wanted to discuss today, which okay. is what I was at. I was plateaued. Yes. And I didn't know what to do with myself. Yeah. And that's what helped me get through it. Mm-hmm. And I read I read this book about maybe a month and a half ago or so. Mm-hmm. And that's what helped me get through it. And I thought maybe somebody else who's struggling with the same kind of issues would find those, you know, those, you know, successes and sure. this this kind of literature to be helpful. Yeah. So basically on this road to mastery that he talks about uh, the majority of the time, you're going to be on these plateaus, these these long periods of time where you're really not making progress per se, um, but you keep practicing, you keep going, and then all of it'll all kind of build up during that plateau into a, like a short burst of like progress. So he talks about living on those plateaus, enjoying them, in, embracing them. And um, I, I really enjoyed the the dabbler, the obsessive, and the hacker. Yes. I'm definitely a, a dabbler, I think. Okay. And maybe with a touch of obsessive. Now, obviously, you could be one in one area. And so mm-hmm. I could be a dabbler in this, but a obsessive or a hacker in something else. If if um, if we can, I'll, I'll give a little bit more context. So what, sure. what the author does in this book is um, 
he, he takes he talks about three types of people and how these variations of people can be used in guidelines kind mm-hmm. of below and in the book and when he talks he says that the categories are obviously not quite this neat they don't fall sure. of course exclusively into one or the other you know a dabbler and he says this is directly from the book you can be a dabbler in love and a master in art you can be on a path of mastery on your job and a hacker on the golf course. Well, I'm definitely a hack on the <laughs> golf course. I'll tell you that one. I'm not sure if I mean hack by by his definition. Sure. But I'm, uh, you know, <laughs> I, I, my my only soiree into golf would be Top Golf. So that yeah, would be so yes. embarrassing to say that yeah. I can even hold. Um, yeah. So so just people kind of have a definition here. So basically, a dabbler like approaches new activities with enormous enthusiasm, but quickly loses interest once the plateau hits. Uh, Carl Jung called it the 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 eternal kid. Uh, George Leonard uh, mentions the obsessive is like the overachiever. Second's not good enough. You know they're going to double their effort, efforts when they hit the plateau, and they want to get things perfect like on the first try. Like if they're if during their first golf lesson they're not hitting perfectly, mm-hmm. they they uh, get upset. And the hacker, um, he just does enough to get by. Someone who you know doesn't get get like promoted is just happy with his you know like the like the status quo um and just is happy to stay on the plateau and not make any progress at at all and so I, I like i like the hacker the definition of the hacker because at the very very end what he does is he says in relationships which is it sometimes when professionally you're stuck sometimes mm-hmm. it kind of bleeds into your personal life especially your sure. relationships and what yeah. ends up happening is he says in relationships at times it feels like the laws that that switch you mentally from lovers, so boyfriend, girlfriend, partner, whatever, into roommates. And this is mm. kind of like my definition of, this is how, what I extracted from it. So if you're yeah. stuck, if you're a hacker, you're just living to get by. Yes. You're at work, you're showing up on time, you're yep. leaving when you're supposed to. You're taking um, all the breaks that you're supposed to. Yeah. There's no going in on your day off kind of thing. It's like what yeah. I described and what my wife always says, it's like passing ships in the night. Yes. You're literally just there as an arrangement. And, and mm-hmm. this way he says, it's an arrangement in which both partners have clearly defined an unchanging roles. And that's mm-hmm. why I'm like, when I read that, it immediately struck me because I was stuck. And again, this is early in the, earlier in the year when it's winter, uh, I work from home, so does yeah. my wife. Like we literally are on top of each other the whole time. Yeah. And unless you have somebody telling you this is what's wrong with you, this is this is where you're at. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it resonates really well. Yeah, and you know, this is right at the beginning of the book, and I feel it. It's there. So as you're reading the book and maybe trying to figure out, okay, how do I start to master something? I think he wants you to have an idea of maybe which three of these you are. Yeah. You or, know, or, or how you see yourself exactly. So, because I think he does say if you're um, if you're a dabbler or or a hacker or or whatever, I forget which one. He says you're gonna have to change yourself mm-hmm. if you want to master something, and you know you're a dabbler. You know that after your first few lessons or something, and after that, like it, that kind of that like excitement of your first golf. Let's just use golf again. Sure. You know, golf uh, lesson. You know, or your first round. You know. You know, here here's an example. I'm a uh, I'm a shotgun shooter, right? Mm-hmm. I scoot, I shoot skeet and I shoot trap and five stand and uh, sporting clays. It's all Greek to me, so I apologize. Yeah. So but I understand what you're talking they're, about. They're called shotgun. You know, they're like shotgun sports. So the first time I, I ever shot skeet, I shot a 16, which is incredible. Oh, Usually wow. people don't don't hit any, or they might hit one or two just. Because they just how many ha- do you get per round then if you don't? I'm um, a I'm a 25. Okay, so that's pretty good. So that that's... so the guy was like, "Listen, dude, 
you're a natural at this, you know, forget golf, you better come down and shoot. So I decided to go buy my own shotgun and I you went all out. I went all out, just like, you know, just like a dabbler would. And when I went to go shoot again, I only shot nine. Uh, now I could have easily been like, eh, well, that, that 16 was just a, a fluke. But I became obsessed with reproducing that, with, with getting back there. And I shot nines for weeks. And the next thing you know, I'm shooting 12s. And then 13s, and then 16s again, and then I'm shooting 25 straight. I won three championships. Oh wow! Oh, so okay. In so a you, row, you took, you took so it. So I took that road of mastery. Now I don't do it as much anymore because I think what happened was I had an idea of where I wanted to go with it. So the first thing was getting 25 straight. That's a big deal. Yeah. And now I'm a mo- 25 I, to 25. Right? Yeah, that's a big. Now when you compete. You actually shoot 100 birds I'm in a row, but that's a whole different. This is just club sure. shooting. This is social shooting. Yeah, this is practice. This is practice, like like literally. I mean, if I, I, I would go to my club to like practice if I was doing, perfe- not you know, like professional or, you know, more, more organized actual shooting like events. And, uh, but I, I had a goal of getting that 25 straight in like each game and, uh, then I won those championships kind of dis, um, in spite of myself. I didn't really like, well, I obviously tried. I didn't just, I didn't mess You didn't up. just show up and yeah. show up. I mean, but I didn't really go thinking I'd win. Actually, the first one that I won, I did my rounds and I left. Because I'm like a new shooter. These guys are in their 50s and 60s. They've been shooting their whole lives. Yeah. I get a phone call. They're like, hey, Mike, can you come back? You're going to win. I said, yeah, I'll come back. I guess I had to take a picture and get a trophy, you know. Then I won two more years in a row, and then I moved, moved, moved to New York. But I feel I, I can be a dabbler in other things. And, uh, but that, I somehow really latched onto it sure. and really focused on it. And, really, and, and, the, and the plateaus, like the guy, the, who, my, my instructor, we still joke mm-hmm. about me getting 16s or 18s for weeks. And, just, and, and, it would, and I wouldn't miss the same birds all the time. You know what I mean? It wasn't sure. always like... Is it do you, you stand in the same stance and they no, just get... Or do you so move? in skeet, you you move around okay. and the birds stay the same. Got it. Uh, so it's challenging as far as where your stance is, yes. not how high it goes or no, what direction. No. It, it's all about where, where you are and how you understand the uh, game and the angles and the geometry and oh, all of that. Oh, that's cool. So yeah. it's, it's, it's primarily focuses on tracking then. Yes. Because as soon as it comes out, you're predicting. Yes. Right? It, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. That's cool. Yeah. Uh, what I liked about is that you were talking about how you obsessively continue to try to get to 20. You said 25? 25 right? is, is, is one round of skeet. One round of trap is 25 birds. Right. So basically your goal was to get 25 out of 25 each time as if it was effortless, right? Yes. And what I like about the obsessive, is, as the author said, is that in relationship, the person lives for the upward surges, the swelling background mm-hmm. music, the trip to the stars. <laughs> and I loved yeah. I loved yeah. those those kind of analogies to, uh-huh. to make you understand it's all about that beautiful kind of over-romanticized, like quick achievements that are obsessed over Mm -hmm. for no reason yeah and what i loved about that is you had an example that was like perfect yes and you know and this was for me Mm -hmm. like i didn't i'm I'm not married but it's not like me getting 25 straight led to meeting my wife or meant to like winning over some maiden at some competition you know what i mean it's not a robin hood kind of thing it was this was just something that i was like wow i i really love golf and I have a I have a place but, but I'm not very good at it sure and I've tried to be good at it 
And I go to this this thing I've never done before, and I was instantly good. And now that is part of these personalities. Absolutely, he being talks, instantly he talks good about being able to recognize yourself, and again, yeah. understanding why you're on a plateau. Yes. So it 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 became something that was like it almost became my identity for a bit. I felt like it might have I might have been doing it too much, mm-hmm. but again, I I latched onto this this path of mastery in it. And yeah. now, but I obviously, if I was still on that path, I mean, to become a national American ski champion or something, that wasn't really my, yeah. that wasn't a path that I needed to be on. It wasn't a pie in the sky goal. I mean, that would have been like. Nice, but not. You would have, I would have had to literally dedicate my life to shooting yeah. ski. No other hobbies. And literally entertained. travel around Pennsylvania. Cause that's what you have to do. Okay. Like they're called registered birds. Oh, wow. And, okay, and so you, you become a member of like the Pennsylvania Skeet Association, Association. Or, or whatever. <laughs> and then you um, you have to register and like pay. And then you go to these different shooting clubs and you shoot registered birds and your scores are, are marked down. And there's like, you know, A is the best, B, C, D. And then when you go to the state competition, if you're a D, then you obviously compete. You're not going to compete with, with A's. The goal is to become an A. And then from there, you know. Here, here's the funny thing that happens from an outsider's perspective right and you're talking about all these hyper specific sport like this is this is exclusive to this interest this hobby this sport right yeah because there are trophies there yes. are advertised um there are advertised sponsors there are televised yes. events etc so what i find fascinating is mentally you took it all the way to the end you dreamed about potentially competing yes and right? and i did do it and, and i did shoot registered won, birds yeah. but it, I, it didn't become there were just other things in my life yeah like my singing career moving to new york my family that it just it it, it couldn't be it couldn't be the only thing at the yes. moment and i yeah. and i get that a lot of times in life um it's understanding that it's and maybe it's not right now yes and and that's cool but yeah a lot of times um, because of societal pressures, internal pressures, work pressures, whatever, you're swayed one way or another. And that's really cool is because the very first thing in the chapter that I wanted to focus on today were, were the tools of mastery. And he talks yes. about um, be aware of the homeostasis works and how it works, yes. the way it works and why you get there. And again, it's kind of similar to the plateau, but what I loved about, and again, this is the this is number one of five of the guidelines of mastery. So this mm-hmm. is this is part three of the book. So this is the almost final part before his parting wisdom yes. pieces, mm-hmm. where he talks about the most important and discipline of the guideline of all is to understand the resistance and backlash. Yeah, and yeah. whether those are internal or external. So you're talking about your life. It's yes, an example where you moved to New York, your singing career. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I know that you had you had some. You know, some of your family members have passed. Yes, and and, and you know, I know that life throws a lot of curveballs. Yeah. so I, I get mean, it. when I went when I went when I went to New New York New York City, I basically had to decide, had to choose a path where shooting was no longer in my life. I mean, there's no skeet fields in Central Park. Hey, so Kona is part of the show, and she is very excited to see Dean. So, <laughs> yes, so you're Slight, slightly, slightly distracted. Uh, but um, so you know, by moving to New York, now that is a pa- a different path of mastery mm-hmm. where my life really became ultra focused um, because there weren't a lot of hobbies 
in, in New York City for me. Yeah. Aside from like the arts. Really. Yeah. I mean, it was just literally my master's degree, singing, singing. Now, the podcast, what we're doing now started in Manhattan and it did become kind of a hobby, something fun for me to do. But, you know, th- that was a different thing for me where I kind of had to, okay, all of these other things that I've been doing, hobbies or, or whatnot, are kind of paused because. I've decided now to dedicate myself to becoming a professional op- um, opera singer. There, okay. Yeah. That's fantastic. I know you have a great voice because yes. I've seen some of your videos that Thank you post you. On, on, on social media, whether it's you in front of the piano, just playing something that you love to sing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, I know it's like just cut and dry. It's just straightforward. One camera, no microphone. I yeah, love no, it. I still love no. it. Well, no, because like I, I have a, 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 a an actual, I mean, if I had like an, ele- I mean, I do have an electric piano. It's in storage sure. because I have my real piano, my family's like real piano. Mm-hmm. And for me to have recording equipment around it, uh, you know, it's in my living room. It would be like a whole thing. Kind but of I, invasive. Yeah. But if I had ele- my electric piano, if I had room in here, I could hook it up to all this um, equipment if, if I wanted to. Yeah. So in in the the way the uh, homeostasis works and how, yeah. and how, um, how this book is laid out is obviously it talks about, you know, going into something and realizing that it may not be right for you. Mm-hmm. And what I liked is he said, don't panic. And I'm, and I'm kind of, I'm quoting from the book here. Don't panic and give up the first sign of trouble. What he says is you might also expect resistance from family, friends, mm-hmm. and coworkers. Say you used to struggle to get out of bed at seven 30 in the morning and barely drag yourself to work. And again, I'm reading from the book here. Now that you are on a path of mastery, so you picked something and you're devoting yourself to it. You're up at 6 AM for a three mile run and in the office, charged and ready to go before 8.30, you might figure your coworkers would be overjoyed, but don't be too sure. And when you get home, still raring to go, uh, do you think that your family will be welcome to that? Mm-hmm. And it's like, it's this strange, and again, this book was written in 1991, yes. so it's 31 years old, mm-hmm. and it's still resonating with somebody that has... Social media, because it didn't exist in 91, yep. no internet. I mean, yep. maybe for, I mean, I think it came around 93, 94, maybe. Yeah. Um, so, no, uh, no internet like we have it now, yeah, where it's nothing. literally in it, you know. And it's totally typical, I think, in the early 90s for them, for this still to be, um, you know, um, one person that's bringing in the money. Sure. And somebody that yeah. stays at home. And typically speaking, in the early 90s in America, it's very much the the male of the family, if you sure. will, in a, in a, kind of male-female yeah. um, uh, marriage. But that being said, it's totally typical at one point in time, and still is at times, for them to be only one person that brings in the money. Sure. So you come in all charged and ready to go, and then you have a completely different dynamic when you get home. So yeah. that resistance, learning to live with it, but learning to work around it, and that's why he gives you these keys. The second key to mastery, which I loved, was the be willing to negotiate with resistance. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I loved the most about it is simply uh, turning off your awareness to the warnings deprive you of guidance and risk damaging the system. So if, if you encounter resistance, whether it's at work, you know, you want to try this new thing or at home, you know, at home, I wanted to start learning electrical. So in my own personal life, how you were talking about, um, you know, with shotgun sports, Mm -hmm. um, you invested time, money, energy, you researched, you kind of went the whole way. I did the same thing with how to wire certain electrical appliances in my house. Okay, yeah. Um, I didn't want to pay to have, um, where it sprung from was I knew my wife wanted to get a new washer and dryer. We didn't have the correct ampage, 30 amp breaker or or 30 amp receptacle on the wall. So I installed it myself. 
and that requires me taking off the panel and like yeah. working with live wires. We have two wow. two hundred amp service in our house. This is something that you would pay several hundred dollars just to get an electrician in the door, not including parts. I mean, a, a fifty foot run of ten gauge um, wire costs about one hundred and fifty dollars. Wow. Okay. And that's just for the wire. So, wow. anyways, I'm I'm going. No, off no, on a tangent, no. That but, that's really interesting because yeah. it's that's really far from anything I would try to do. Yeah. Because I'm just such a I don't know, right brain, left brain. I'm just, I'm more of an artistic sure. mind. And so working with wires and things, like, unlike my younger brother who would, who would, lo- that, that, at the mouth. <laughs> that's his, you know, forte, m- mechanical engineering. Right now he's been um, taking apart and uh, re-cleaning and, and ta- basically taking m- m- old mechanical watches that don't work nice. and making them work, that's awesome. which is to me mind-blowing. Yeah, like I would take take it right to the jewelry store. Like let someone else handle that. My my sausage fingers would (laughs) never be able to handle it. No, 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 absolutely no way. (laughs) So, so the that kind of be willing to negotiate with resistance and understanding that resistance is very much part of the journey to mastery. Sure. uh, Where it could be it could be both internal. Yes. Meaning that you're saying I'm not good enough. Yes. Which is where I was at. So Mm -hmm. when I talked about earlier in January, this is where I was at. I wasn't willing to negotiate with myself. I just had these um, if you if you will, the uh, angel and devil analogy on your shoulders, the devil was speaking a lot louder than the angel. And I just sure. kept self-sabotaging myself because I wasn't willing to negotiate, which is okay, you don't know this part about your job. Just start smaller. Learn yeah. about the first concept that you don't understand, and then that will lead to the next. And yeah. I gave up on myself. Uh, which wow. Is, which is why which is why it was so um, difficult to crawl out of it. Because when you're talking yourself every day about how terrible you are at your job and you feel like you're not going anywhere, you just kind of spiral out of there. Okay. Um, and then the third key is develop a support system. Now, what I love is that the first sentence he says when he introduces this key, it says, you, you can do it alone, but it helps to have a great deal, it, to have great um, uh, people around you with whom yes. you, know, you can obviously share the joys and the perils of these trials and tribulations of, on your way to mastery. And again, he's using... Um, the author in the book, he, he uses tennis, I think, um, yes. about the, the, the swing, the backhand, the, you know, and he also used that example of the Seahawks um, mm-hmm. NFL player. Yeah. And, and again, it's like, it's just that anybody could be, you just could be a master at something. You just have to start and yeah. you have to realize that there is an entire ecosystem that happens around the process to getting there. Yeah. So developing a support system of people that understand that how you have communicated ahead of time, this is where I want to be. Yeah. Um, this is important for me. I've, I'm going to dedicate time to this um, and finding that support system is what makes, you know. It, and, and that could be difficult. I mean, again, I'm single. You have a wife. It could be, you know, you might have a wife and three kids and all of a sudden you, you want to master something that could, you know, maybe take away from making money. Maybe could, you know, and it's like to have your wife and, and your, and, you know, and for me it would be friends, family, understanding where you're coming from, why you want to do these things. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you know, if I say, you know, I, I can't go out tonight for a beer because I need to lose weight and I have to go to the gym. I, I want to have six pack abs, I, whatever sure. it is. Sure. And it's like, well, you're not, a, you're not a friend anymore. And it's like, well, I'm sorry, but beer hasn't helped me. You know what I mean? Yeah. This is something that is going to help me. And, I'm, you know, it he, just is what it is. And what's nice is that in the developing the support system, he specifically talks about 
what if your quest for mastery is a lonely one? Meaning, mm -hmm. what if you can find no fellow voyagers? And again, I'm reading from the book. What if you could find no fellow voyagers on this particular path? At the least, you can let people know that are close to you what you're doing and ask for their support. Yeah. You don't necessarily need people to um, go to the lengths of maybe driving you to practice yeah. or financially supporting you. Just saying, this is what I'm doing. All I need you to do is be aware. Yeah. Um, so if you see me... Um, frowning or if you see me sad it's because i have a plan in place i, I have a i have a destination i have a journey ahead of me uh, i'm looking for your support so i just said you know that i'm doing this mm -hmm. and that's why that's why it's important yeah um and then the fourth key is follow a regular practice yes and, and this goes with almost anything and I, and I wish i remembered the statistic but i think it's like it takes like 20 some days to develop a new habit yeah i think it's like 21 something, something like, like if that. you do something 21 days in a row it becomes now a yeah. a habit. And, yes, I and, think that's the, the, the yeah. And people obviously are embarking on any many types of different changes. Whether it's you know personal, professional, you could just want to be a great dog handler, right? Sure. And some of the some of the um, you know, some of the examples that I kind of talked about is, is dog training curve, and this is more for me. I became uh, a first time dog owner uh, three and a half years ago or so. Okay. Um. And I hyper fixated on having the perfect dog. <laughs> so I studied every single possible command and how you get there. Yeah. And everybody around me knew in my life, bless you, Coco. Everybody in my life knew that my dog Biscoff was going to be the perfect dog. Yeah. I was outside with a six foot lead, like training recall and treats and paw and sit and bar, everything. Mm -hmm. um, and eventually I, I banded it. Because I realize that what I'm asking of my dog will never be picture perfect. Yeah. But all of those skills that he learned over the course of me having him for two and a half years, three years, um, eventually that's when I stopped. That's that's how I knew that, okay, he mastered those skills. I can move on to other things. And it wasn't just like the show dog kind of, you know, yeah. leaps through the air and grabs this thing in the middle of it. None yeah. Of that. Yeah, I actually belong to an indoor dog park. I know, and we talked about yes. this previously, and it's so fun. And they have the, the like, obstacle stuff and, like, the tunnel, and some dogs love it. Kona has no interest whatsoever in leaping over things or going through tunnels. She just wants to play and chase the sit, ball. Huh? You, you know, she's a street dog from Puerto Rico. She has very simple, she's like, all I need is a ball. <laughs> and just to chase it, you You're know, just a happy girl. yeah. And it's just so interesting, though, because, you know, well, first off, if I had her as a puppy puppy and we started doing those things, I'm sure she might be be, uh, I'll be interested. But now she's four years old. She's you know, she is who who she is. The the fifth part. Um, so so the fourth part being regular practice, the fifth key to mastery is dedicate yourself to a lifelong learning to lifelong yeah. learning and yeah. this is a bit more of the uh the fluffy part like the, the you read at the back of the book where it's like yeah. the, really the 90s kind mm -hmm. of like quintessential and which is a little bit more of you know practice is a habit um, yes and obviously uh, the idea behind practices is not just providing a basis of, of a underlying homeostasis where you have a place or something to go to where you know that you can practice and i'm using air quotes because practice is also the part of the mastery similar to how you're talking about um skeet shooting you'd have to drive yes. and go to competition that time in the car 
driving yeah. or getting to the, uh, I want to say arena, if you will, or how, sure. whatever the outdoor area that you're performing in, if you will, mm-hmm. that whole part of feeling the grass and, and understanding, okay, this is where I'm going to stand. And that's all part of mastery. So although it's not necessarily practice, but dedicating yourself and understanding that, that the fifth key is it's lifelong learning. So even yes. though it's the lulls and it's plateaus, oh, I have to drive to, I have to drive to, I don't know, State Park, or I have to drive to, you know, Erie or whatever. You know, that's yeah. part of that journey, and that's yes. why I appreciate it because you know he says that the dabbler, the obsessive, and the hacker are all learners in their own fashion. And again, I'm reading from the book, but lifelong learning is the special journey of those who travel the path of mastery, the path that never ends. Yes. And what I loved the most um, after he did that was in kind of like the closing thoughts of the book. And that's what I loved about this last chapter is he says, the path of mastery learns learning never ends. And he uses a Japanese swordsman, mm-hmm. which I loved. Uh, and I'm going to butcher it, but I tried to get the pronunciation. It's Yamaoka Tesu. Okay. I believe that's how it's pronounced. And his, and again, this is from, this is in 1800s from modern day, now is modern day Tokyo. Um, His quote is, do not think that this is all there is. More and more wonderful teachings exist. The sword is unfathomable. Mm -hmm. So again, this is, this is kind of uh, take what you will from it. Kind of like the Proverbs that never stop giving, if you will, if you read it in certain times of your life it will have more profound meaning than it does now, maybe. But what I loved about it is it, it does speak about mastery. Don't Just because you're holding the sword and you can do these maneuvers that, that these famous Japanese swords handlers would be able to execute, it doesn't necessarily mean that that's it. Oh, you, yeah. You have to commit to lifelong learning and mastering every move, every breath, every yes. stance, and the list goes on. Yeah. So, I mean, when it comes to... First off, and that's anything. Like opera singers, you never stop having a teacher. Mm-hmm. Even if you become a teacher yourself, let's say I get a job at Carnegie Mellon, te- I'm, I'm teaching voice. Okay. I would still have a teacher for myself because most, most people still perform. Like my teacher in college, she would perform certain things. You know, if they did like a big requiem or something, she might be the, the mezzo-soprano soloist or... She might say, you know, I'm going to take a week off to go perform in Minneapolis or something. And, and she wrote, uh, she wrote a, a sacred song book, you know, that she spent time publishing and stuff and like pu- and putting together. And uh, so you never really stop as an opera singer. And, you know, it's not always one teacher, too. You want to go to as kind of as many as you can to kind of grab nuggets of wisdom. But you usually should have, like he says in the beginning of, of the book, um, you should have a, I think he said something along the lines of having a, somebody that you look up to yes. and, 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 and kind of um, almost interviewing yeah. who you want to be taught by. Yeah. So when I, when I went to New York City, the teacher that I had during my master's, there, there, there came a point where my voice was uh, changing and I needed to switch teachers, but he became my, my, my mentor. And even though I switched teachers, I would always go back to him and, and sing for him because I felt he knew my instrument better than, than like anyone. And he like, so we're, we've been discussing the tools for mastery, mm-hmm. but before that he talks about the five master keys 
and instruction is, is number one. And that's basically finding your master teacher, finding for him, it would be an, a black belt um, Aikido instructor. You know, for me, it was going to New York and finding that voice teacher because at the end of the day, singing is a job. Okay, it's a job, just like your job, just like my sister's job, just like, you know, if someone pays me, I show up and I do a job. Yes, it's singing on stage, it's acting, there's costumes and wigs. But someone not only has to, it's not only about learning how to sing, mm-hmm. it's learning how to do the job. And when, my, when this teacher told me that, I knew this was, yeah. this was someone who understood what it took to become a professional opera singer, not just a good singer. Not just someone who sings at parties and, you know, does karaoke and people go, wow, isn't it? But someone who is a professional. Sure. And uh, that, that I thought was very um, important. And it's, it's cool because um, when, let, we'll use the opera as, a, as an example. And I apologize if I'm butchering this and it's not, it's incorrect. So please, you obviously are a little bit more of an expert <laughs> than I am. But um, back when I was um, much younger, um, singing was something that I considered because I was playing music with a yeah. band that I could possibly play and sing at the same time. I don't think about that anymore, but um, cause, because of the type of music that I play. But that being said, I talked about with the singer in my old band about how he uses the cavities behind his eye sockets. Oh. And I'm sure that's something that you can talk about because yeah. to me, that makes absolutely no sense. Yes. But I can imagine that an instructor. Now, what I love about this is that in the book on page seven, it talks about, you know, it starts with baby steps. The teacher shows you how to hold the rack and uses tennis as an example. Yes. So a, a teacher may be a video, right? And mm-hmm. you say, okay, I'm going to take a baby step. I'm going to learn the difference between head voice and yes. to work from my diaphragm versus my whatever. So what, what just real quick, yeah. what, what you were describing there is what they call singing into the mask. Okay. So you're, your the sound of your voice, regardless of, of of what you sing, isn't created here. And I'm pointing to my larynx. Mm-hmm. Okay, if you should put a microphone directly above the larynx and sing, all you're all you're gonna hear is a buzzing sound. the 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 reason, um, you know, why my voice might be loud, someone else is. If I have a huge head, there's all this sinus cavity space where the sound is actually created. Mm-hmm. That This is your a resonator, and I'm pointing to above your lip, mm-hmm. okay? It's like directly behind your eye sockets. Yes, up up into your head. When you sing opera, you sing back and up, not out. Mm-hmm. Most people think I'm like yelling outwards. I'm actually singing back and shooting my voice up into this cavity where the sound is actually created. Is, is that why I feel like opera singers, when they're on the stage, have a much more, uh, they, they never move, yeah, like, no. Their, their their feet are so firmly planted because they're projecting upwards yes. toward the ceiling. Yeah, your your feet need to be. You are your your instrument, and you must be anchored. So there's this concept of support, right? It's this vague kind of. We'll just support more. Well, what what does that mean? There's this whole discussion. How do I what does that even mean, right? Uh, now it I we can go along. It's like, I got like an hour about support. <laughs> we could spend yeah. all night talking yeah. about head voice and <laughs> opera singer. Uh, but at the end of the day, you are your 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 instrument. Your instrument must be grounded, mm-hmm. and your instrument must be aligned. Yeah. You know, if I should bend a violin in half, it's not going to sound like a violin anymore. Yeah. It's going to be broken. And so, and basically, because even though your 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 larynx is a resilient thing, it is this little thing floating in your throat and if you're singing at a top level like opera 
and you're not supporting correctly, you you can break it. Yeah. And and rock and, and like Adele, Sam Smith, they become these huge pop stars. No one really actually taught them how to sing properly. They have these natural voices and they end up they, they end up getting a surgery. But but their demand on their voices because they're pop stars sure. is huge. But we're all we're I think it's tough because some of these pop stars are also spending months in the studio perfecting a track. Yeah, yeah. they're obviously singing organically; it's their yes. voice. But um, a two-second snippet into, let's say, a second chorus mm-hmm. might have taken them three weeks just to get those breaths right. Yeah, and so that it's not cut and paste from other sessions. Yeah, um, some people hyper fixate on perfecting it like that, mm-hmm. and. What I loved about the example of the opera um, and you moving to New York is you, you remember that um, and you and you might know what I'm talking about. There was a famous video of a, I think a first chair violinist playing in the subway of New York, mm-hmm. and it's like you know uh, cheapest tickets to his um, Joshua Bell. Was, is that okay? So yeah, so Joshua Bell I, is a hugely famous uh, violinist. Okay, so you and do he, know who I'm talking he about. He was then. just playing. Uh, that'd be like Pavarotti just in the subway singing right. and you're just throwing pennies into his hat and, and you're like, and the, wow, that, there's there's Luciano Pavarotti. And, and the, <laughs> the funny part is that, sure, there may be people who have absolutely no idea who this person is, mm-hmm. whether it is an opera singer or yeah. a first year cellist, whatever it may yeah. be. There's, there's um, going to be a lot of people who would walk by Joshua Bell have no idea. and have no idea who he is. Who, who's this bum? Now me, as now I'm not even a violinist, but when you're in that world... When you're in that level in New York City, at a high level of musical training and stuff, these things are just in your orbit. You know, they're in my orbit. Yeah. I know who he is. I see him on bill, not billboards, but like uh, when you go down to Lincoln Center and there's the New York Symphony, they might have like a banner of him, like see Joshua Bell and some violin concerto or something. You're just aware of it. Plus, all your friends, like my main friend group when I was in my master's was a classical guitarist a viola um, player, a piano player, and then me, an opera singer. My core group was four dudes who did four different things. Mm -hmm. So I was always exposed to different stuff. I just wasn't hanging out with other opera singers. Right. Because guess what we talk about all the time? Opera. Right. But but when I was with my, like, we we called ourselves the uh, the, uh, wolf pack. Okay. (laughs) Well, you, you know. I know. It's corny, but it's great. Yeah, right. It's great. When we were together... We might bring up, oh, I had this classical guitar thing to do. Or I had a viola thing to do. But at the end of the day, we all have four different interests. And it was just a nice group to have. Because when I was with opera singers, that's all we talked about. And it, but we are passionate, though. But sometimes you want to just talk about, can we talk about something else? Yeah. Like, and you know. The the, the <laughs> example of the um, the violinist or the, the, the what was the, that um, player's name? Joshua Bell. Jo- Joshua. Joshua Bell. Joshua Bell. So the, this video of Joshua Bell, or this this still image of yeah. him playing in the subway, it's not necessarily about about him. Let's say um, downgrading his abilities, if yeah. you will. It's not necessarily him saying, "Look, uh, uh, I don't really feel like playing in a uh, the symphony hall, uh, if you will, tonight." What he's doing is he's perfecting, if you will, his practice. So that he can try to play in an environment that's different, louder, maybe with lower ceilings. Maybe he has to hold his reed differently or his bow differently. Yeah. Excuse me. Um, it, all of those things 
take so long to master because he could walk into that subway station yes. and know within 30 seconds, I can't play like I do in the symphony hall and I have to make the following adjustments. It's just like it would be with you taking a drive four hours away to another pl- place to play, um, you know, uh, skeet shooting. Yes, yeah. Like you, it, Things were different than where you normally practice, but you practice so that you instantly know. It's like sous chefs, right? They yeah. spend countless of hours sweating in the kitchen so that blade goes through the food perfectly and they can, um, if you will, anticipate their head chef's move. Yes. So... You know, those garnishes can go on in perfect synchrony. Yeah, that is interesting because, you know, I shoot primarily at one skeet field, at, at one shooting place. And what happens is, is, your, is your muscle memory. You, you know that, you know those machines, you know the angle, you know how fat. Now, in competition, everything has a standard. The machines are at this angle, the speed of the bird is this. Mm-hmm. But, you know, when you go to these clubs, you don't, you know, there's no one, com- there's no like, Pittsburgh Skeet Shooting Association like <laughs> official coming to check the speed of the birds. Of course. So, you know, I might go to another club and shoot terribly because I'm shooting at, at my club. You know, I in my mind, in my muscle memory, I'm like shooting my skeet field. So that is a very interesting thing is that even though you have all this muscle memory, all this mastery of maybe one skeet field, mm-hmm. when you go to another there, you have to have this awareness that, okay, I need to surrender as he says, to this environment and know that, you know, I might have to be a little more hyper aware of where these birds and their speed, and maybe I won't shoot as quickly or as accurately on the first round. But as rounds go by, yeah. I you, adapt. You, you're quicker to make the adjustments yes. because you've mastered the skills yes. of knowing and the feel. It, it's, it's the same thing for dog training, for example. Yeah. If you take Kona out to on a walk randomly and you know she really doesn't like small dogs Mm -hmm. Um, or let's say you're working on recall you got to break those things into smaller pieces Mm -hmm. so so she masters them and you master them so you can make adjustments on the fly and I'll give you an example if you go to the dog park we have an indoor dog park and you want to work on recall you work on recall with a lead outside tied to a tree and you make her work for it by giving her chicken or bacon or something that she absolutely cannot go without um, and over time, you take that resistance away. So you, you know, you work for longer distances, and that's mm-hmm. it, and it's again, it's those micro adjustments. Yeah. as we talk about, you know, opera singing or um, playing uh, in a subway. Oh yeah, yeah. And then you know, when you go to different opera houses, they're all built di- um, differently. So at the Metropolitan Opera, apparently there's a sweet spot. Apparently there's somewhere on stage. Now I've never had the. Uh, pleasure of singing on that stage, but I've I've been there, mm-hmm. but I've never actually sung on the Metropolitan Opera stage. But apparently, there is a spot that, like, it somehow for some reason is the perfect acoustic spot. Interesting, and it's only on stage where it's, the resonance or something. It's something to do with if you sing on that spot, it hits the the hall a certain way mm. and amplifies your voice. And I there's this story, and again, these are stories. Sure. Uh, uh, you know, Pavarotti's in an opera. He's the most famous opera singer ever, you know, in the world. And obviously, you could do La Boheme a thousand times or a thousand different um, um, productions, and you have a thousand different directors that give you a thousand different blockings, you know, costumes and stuff. So this director said, okay, when you're singing that note, I want you to stand here. And he goes, no, 
I'm going to stand to here because that was the spot. Yes. Because when, when I sing this high note that I'm famous for, I will be standing in that spot. And there's just, you you can try all you want to move me, but I'm about 500 pounds. So, you know what I mean? But like, there's, it's, a, it's, a, I, that's just a little, a little anecdote sure. there. But I, I, that's a very interesting kind of thing. Uh, you know, but you know what's you know what's funny is that so say you were in New York, right? Let's let's say this is 15 years ago, yeah. whatever, however long ago this was. Um, it doesn't matter. the The point is, let's say you said, "I want to know where this sweet spot is." Yeah. So then, what you do is you open up the the equivalent of the penny saver, whatever yeah. it would be, and you look for all the classes that are held on that stage. Yeah. And you sign up for every single one that you can afford to yeah. to pay for. Or can make work with your schedule so that your only result is you get up on that stage and you find that sweet spot. Yes. Um, it may be music that you never sing. It's not your yep. preference. Yep, but it doesn't, yeah. But it gives you the opportunity to feel the floor creak. Yeah. And to know, okay, I'm 17 steps to the right. It's about right here. I need to stand underneath these 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 um, overhead you know, scaffolding or whatever, not yeah. whatever the, the catwalk, excuse me. Mm-hmm. That's... That's kind of the process to mastery is willing to to necessarily de- de- not degrade yourself, but put yourself maybe a couple pegs lower to do maybe something that you don't want to sing or class you don't want to take but, just so you can walk on the stage and yeah. get quicker to what you need. to. Well, be. let me tell you the, you know, one of these things, I, I think the the thing when he talks about I'm um, surrender is very, I'm um, very interesting. You know, because there are there are people with you know big egos and just think, well, I'm some big a personality something, and you know, I'm I'm going to do it my way, even though the instructor says hold the racket this way. I think holding, even though every tennis player in the world, mm-hmm. you know, Nadal, you know, Federer holds the racket this certain way. I know better, so I, I'll never forget. And this isn't really pertaining to like knowing better, but the first time that I ever sang on a big stage, like a legitimate opera house. I literally, I felt like I was like screaming because I looked down because it was a rehearsal. There's no one really out there. The lights, you know, you can see the whole hall. Sure. Everything is, everything's lit up. It's huge. And I thought I need to literally yell. Overexert yourself. basically. Because yeah. like, how the heck is anyone going to hear me? You know, but then, but what you have to do is the, the hall is built in a certain way. You're on the stage a certain way. The orchestras, I mean, opera is not new. I mean, they, they figured this out. Centuries ago, right? You, got, you know what I mean? Oh yeah. Well, going back to Roman yeah. times and even before, yeah. they built the they built them that way. Yeah. And I got off stage, and and my my buddy who I was singing with was like, "Dude, you're like really pushing." And I'm like, "I've never sung on a stage like this." And you just have to sing like you would in the practice room, like you would during all your rehearsals. You just sing and le- and surrender to the environment. Just do do what you do. You've been on this path of mastery. For, okay, that's a micro mastery where you've learned this opera yeah. with, with like this blocking, you know, on this stage, right? Yeah. You got to master all of this stuff within this couple weeks or few months or like whatever. And don't change it just because now instead of being in the re- rehearsal hall, we're on the stage. Yeah. Because the opera house will, first off, opera singers, right? We're not, we're not amplified. Our, our voices carry that's, that's over, yeah. right? But we're built to do that. We we train to do that. But when you're when I never the first time, man, I was yelling because sure. I thought there's no way they're going to be able to did hear. Did you get me. off the stage if we're like lightheaded or something? Yeah, or? I was like, that's not tenable. Like I can't. So that's that's the difference between 
knowing how to sing and knowing how to do the job. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and what's cool is that um, in when we when um, when he talks about the da- the the dabbler, the obsessive, and the hacker. In the hacker, he talks about the professional who is known for only a solid forehand yes. but ragged backhand yes. and is okay and I'm using air quotes with yeah. using this as leverage to continue so yeah. if you said well I'm on the stage now so I'm just going to yell because you know I'm yeah. this is what I've done so whatever yeah and just thinking that that will carry you and it will be acceptable and it's, and it's not because they're, they're not going to hire you back no because <laughs> you and, sound and, like shit. and that's why and, and that's <laughs> and that's and this goes hand in hand with getting resistance yeah. and learning about homeostasis and kind of equilibrium of things and, and learning that um if you're not going to hit it out of the park the first time um, yeah, but a hundred percent. You know, trying, a hundred percent. Yeah, and and luckily, obviously, you're you're on the stage before your opening night. It's not like opening night's the first time you're on that stage. I mean, you spend at least I don't know a week or maybe a couple dress rehearsals in in the space yeah. doing it for real. Because usually you're like in a rehearsal hall. So like when I was with the Pittsburgh Opera, our all of our rehearsals are at the Pittsburgh Opera offices and they're big like rehearsal spaces, mm-hmm. and then couple dress rehearsals on the actual Benetton stage and then you do you know opening night because you got to go on the stage you know you got to but you know but whether you like it or not you're yeah going on the I stage. mean you got to go on the stage and you know luckily my then I had already had my experience at the San Francisco opera yelling Maya head off <laughs> and knew all I had to do was just sing it like I always sing and they're gonna hear me you know and it's but you, it's hard it's a hard okay it's like in shooting okay in shotgun shooting, you don't aim, okay? Okay. If you aim at the bird, the orange disc, you're going to miss. Yeah, because you're not accounting for the wind and yeah. the trajectory. So you have to lead the bird. So this is what changed my whole shooting game. Okay. It's not about shooting the bird. It's now okay. I, I'm saying bird. I just want like everyone to know they're clay. They're they're, they're, they're clay pigeons. They're they're clay discs. We call them birds. Yeah. Because back in the day, they were actual birds. Of course. You know. But, Are we talking about duck hunt? No, we just, no. Yeah. This move is the duck hunt. No. Yeah. So these, you know, we call them birds, but they're 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 the orange discs, right? It's not about hitting the disc. It's not about shooting it. It's about placing the 300 BBs that are in your 12 gauge shotgun shell. In the sky, in front of it, so the bird flies into it. Oh, okay. That's 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 such a it's, it's, a, it's so it's, it's a beautiful. A, it's a concept yeah. that changes how you proceed. I'm not. I don't. I don't. I'm not trying to shoot the bird. I'm trying to to like spraying a hose across a barn wall. Okay. Spraying my BBs in the air. So the bird flies into it. I have a really silly question. When when you so as you're tracking, right? Yeah. And, and I'm kind of um, for the listener. I'm I'm pretending I have a shotgun. Sure. Sh- yeah. So, yeah. so are you tracking? And as you're pulling the trigger, you're still moving. Yes. You never. So you, you, you never stop. You, you never, never stop the gun. You're not basically no. stand. Your stance is not locked. No. And you're pulling the trigger. No. Okay. What you actually do is you face away from the house that the bird's coming out. Mm-hmm. You coil your body back. So when you call pull yeah. and your body uncoils and yeah. the gun never stops. It's um it's almost it's almost like a slow golf swing cuz you're just tracking yes. but your whole basically your hips your yeah. your torso is moving and your hips are kind of 
adjusting. My my legs stay planted. Right. And I coil my body back towards the house. I call pull and then uncoil it and then just keep keep my hips just like a golf swing. Keep your hips moving, keep your 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 body moving, pull the trigger when you're ready and never stop the gun. Hmm. Yeah. It's so interesting because I didn't I didn't grow up necessarily in a uh, a very sports heavy family because yeah. we moved a lot when I was younger yeah. and I never was really in one place for a very long time or young enough to um, be in a sports team. So that was never really a big upbringing of mine, more so the arts and music. I woke yeah. up every morning with opera playing in the background yeah. as loud as possible. That's great. Sometimes um, show tunes. Yes. Yeah. You know. Well, I mean, most singers start in brought in some musical sort of theater yeah. because. Really, even though you see these like Jackie Ivankos and Char- Charlotte Churches, these young girls who have these opera voices, that's fine. But at the end of the day, you know, if I had a 12-year-old girl that I was training, you know, we would be, first off, I would assess her, her voice, obviously. We wouldn't necessarily be singing opera, you know, maybe some classical songs like, mm-hmm. like, like, like O Sole Mio, okay. very famous song. That's a Neapolitan song. That's not from an opera. It's not an aria, right? So there are these songs, these old, old songs written I'm in Italy that are like, they're, it, it's a way every opera singer sings those as a way to get into this kind of idea of how opera works, how mm. classical Italian music works. And then you eventually graduate into the big boy stuff, into the actual arias, into the big opera stuff. Mm. But I started in a, in a musical theater. You know, there's a castle on a cloud and, and, you know, I don't know, you name it, all this. And I did musicals and stuff. And then as I grew up, as I got older, the voice obviously moved into a more um, operatic sound. People say, Mike, why do you do opera? Why don't you just do musical theater? Because I can. Right. And there's and- musical theater people who can't. Like there's this, speaking of a, of a TikTok, right? There's this young woman on TikTok who has a beautiful voice, kind of like a rock and roll belty voice. She posted a video trying to sing, sing opera. And it was horrible. I'm sorry. It was, I sent it to, to my sister, Danielle, because, you know, she has, actually, if you ask me who has the best voice in my family, I would say I'm Danielle. Ooh, you know, she has a little a, internal competition there. Beautiful voice, okay. right? Uh, I sent it to, to Danielle. She goes, oh my God, awful. And it's like, because, just because you can sing, you know, uh, some kind of belty rock song doesn't always translate the Make other. qualify to just Yeah, be because it's it. a completely different way of singing. Straight, there's no straight. Well, okay, I don't want to say there's no straight tuning in, uh, in um, opera. There, there are some more baroque, uh, kind of uh, in modern music where you might want a straight tone, which is you know there's no vibrato, sure, you know. But the the natural movement of the larynx is is is, is vibrato. Straight toning is actually not great for the instrument. It is used in opera occasionally for effect. But, you know, it's, it's, uh, but again, this, this girl straight tones all the time because she's rock and roll, like, like belting. And then she tries to sing opera with a vibrato and her instrument just like falls apart because mm. she doesn't know how to support this free flowing instrument. Does that make sense? It, it does make sense. And I would love to meet her because give me an hour and I could have her doing it. There is a, um, a heavy metal vocalist named Will Ramos who recently within the last let's say two years um really got propelled into the forefront of like really insane 
screaming. And I'm yes. talking about like the opposite end of the spectrum as far as what we're talking about. Yeah. And he got invited to a fellow YouTuber's audiologist, like specialist, and they did a whole YouTube video about his vocal cords. They yeah. numbed his throat. They oh, put yeah. Put a camera down. Yep. Just so they can do his pig squeals oh, and yeah. screams. And he is able to turn his muscles completely sideways. Oh, my God. To get those vocal, to get those vocal sounds. And oh, that's horrifying. It's so cool to watch in real time. And he's been able to master those vocal uh, progressions and of him able to, let's say, a reach really deep pig squeal, for example. And I'm yeah. using that as an example. Uh, he's able to get there instantly. And wow. so his vocal cords, when you watch the video, they instantly go, and I'm, and I'm kind of I'm using my, my hands. To I wouldn't from, even know how to do that. Yeah. So go from two um, parallel lines yeah. going up and down into the sky, going sideways. So going from parallel to perpendicular. I think that's, yeah, that's yeah, it. Right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. They just move instantly. It's so cool. I'll have to send it to yeah, you. Yeah, please do. Because, you know, uh, I mean, yeah, it, singing is vocal uh, manipulation. I mean, it's all about controlling your uh, instrument. Because when you sing, it actually tips. So like you, I mean, I could listen, I could get in. I mean, gosh, we could be here all night sure. t- uh, telling you how your larynx works. And because, you know, it, it is important when you're, you need to learn. It's not like we focus, we don't go to like pre-med classes yeah. or like ENT classes, but we learn enough about the anatomy. So we know what you're when doing. we're on stage, you know, and when we're performing, because like opera singing is an extreme ask of your voice. It's an extreme use of your of your larynx, mm-hmm. okay? Uh, even though we can physically do it, and people have done it very successfully for a very long time, it's not really what it's, like, built to do all the time. I mean, listen, a violinist can practice eight hours a day. Opera singers, hour, hour and a half, and that's it. Mm-hmm. If you try to sing eight hours a day, you're gonna, your voice is going to be gone. But it's also... It's going to be shot. But in the mastery trajectory if you yes. want. And on the journey to mastery so say you know that you can only do an hour and a half mm-hmm. it took you probably years to realize that yes a, and b let's say let's say let's make it easy easy numbers let's say it's an hour and a half that you can go as a max that you can put your pressure on your vocal cords yeah. at, or your body. at that operatic level sure. that's what i mean yeah. you know and really any singing to be honest but yeah but the mastery process is also knowing i need an hour and a half of warm-up or I need an hour before to have a cup of tea or yes. whatever it may be. I'm yes. obviously oversimplifying something that has taken people years yeah. to master. So I'm kind of pulling out of my hat in yeah. the sense that I know, you know, before I get on stage, I have certain things that I have to do behind the guitar. I have scales that I run oh, yeah. quietly. Um, uh, there are stretches that I do for my hands because mm-hmm. you get you get older yep. and your body demands different things of you. Oh yeah. So it's also listening to yourself and not stopping and not kind of doing that oh yeah i mean there's like you know there's 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 teachers that you know will say you know before you sing you got to do these breath these breath exercises i mean obviously before a show i have to warm up you can tell when a singer goes on cold (laughs) you can really tell i'm sure their voice is just not really responding. It's not lubricated. It's yes. Not ready. You got to get the blood flowing in and around the larynx. So when you hit the stage, yeah. it's not the first note you've sung that day. I'm, I'm not I'm not yeah. backstage running through scales. 
um, as a joke. Um, no, no, no. To, to look cool. There's a law. Yeah. So I, I need my fingers warm. I yeah. need everything loosened. The thing about opera and singing in general is that even though you might only be able to physically sing for an hour to an hour and a half a day, um, there's a lot of what we call armchair work. Uh, so I sing in German, French, Italian. Oh, wow. English, obviously. I tried Russia, a Russian. There's some really great Ru- Russian operas, but that language is very difficult. And my teacher was like, there's enough o- Russian opera singers. You're fine. <laughs> Let them sing it. Let them do it. Because there's not enough Russian opera. It's not like Italian opera. Sure. Whereas, like, I mean, Italian operas. Everybody. Right now, 24 hours a day. You know what I mean? <laughs> there's Italian opera going can, on somewhere. You can subscribe to that channel as well. Yeah, exactly. But, like, yeah, so... Uh, so let's say when I was cast as Tamino in The Magic Flute, I sang that in Italy in 2013. Oh, wow. What? I, in Italy? Yeah. How I, fantastic. I, I, I get the score, and uh, now I, it, the armchair work. I have to go through and highlight or whatever every time I sing. Would you, con- would you translate what you're singing so that you know which words are more important to you? Oh, yes. Wow. So then I have to go through the score and translate the German into English because when you open an opera score, if there's English under the foreign language, mm-hmm. either French, Italian, or German, that English isn't necessarily tra- what it says in the German or French mm. or Italian because what they do is they kind of do more of a poetic thing to make the words fit the notes. So a composer has the the uh, libretto. The the libretto is all the lyrics, mm-hmm. right? And they compose to the words. But the notes are to that foreign language. Mm-hmm. So when you when you try to make an English translation for the score, it doesn't always work. So they have to change it or tweak it. Sometimes they even have to add notes. And you're saying this is when you're singing something that's written in... Yeah, so the Magic Flute written by Mozart in German. I get the score. Or you're singing it in German? Or in German. In, okay. in German. The Magic Flute, does the, it does get performed in English a lot because it's kind of a princess, prince, you know, sword. They There's a dragon. Kind of like a... A, a lot of times they do it as like a kid's opera. Okay. Even though the Magic Flute is one of my favorite operas of all time but back in the day when it was written it wasn't written for like the court it was written for it was more like a musical okay it was more like a funny kind of theatrics farcical thing and uh though now it's one of the most performed operas like of all time uh so the last time i saw it it was actually in, in in english but i sang it in german in italy so i have to translate it and there are resources for this it's been translated i don't have to get a dictionary yeah, and do it word myself. For word and, yeah. But so there are resources that will translate it word for word. Someone's already done this, and you pay to get that translation. If you really want to be, you know, into it, you can get a German dictionary and translate it on yourself. But you know, time is time. You know, yeah, you, you, don't you know. may get it a couple of weeks before. Yeah. So and then, so I have to I highlight, then I write all of that in, then I write in something called IPA. The International Phonetic Alphabet. Interesting. It's an alphabet of sounds. Sure. So then I have to write in the IPA. So I know exactly how to pronounce all of these German words. Now I, I did that with some of the some of the people um, yes. that, were, that, that were in this book, their names. Yeah. So there's something called a transliteration. Mm-hmm. So like there's a there's a, a a Russian aria that starts with the word kuda. Kuda, kuda, right? 
Well, in, in Russian, it looks nothing like K-U-D-A. Sure. I don't know, you know. So they, they will write a transliteration, K-U-D-A, for an English. So that's pronounced yeah. Kuda. But the IPA is something completely... It's a K-O-O or It's something. a different yeah. deal. You know what I mean? So then I have to figure out the IPA for all the German words. Also, there are resources for that as well. Someone's done it and I, I you never buy thought it. About, yeah. I never thought about the correlation between the phonetic alphabet and yes. how you yes. would understand somebody else's translation. I used to be able to write it like an IPA. Hmm. I can like write, just write in it. It's a, it I love IPA. It's actually something from my master's and just from my bachelor's as well, just all my musical training that I, I really enjoyed IPA. I thought it was a really cool, this alphabet of sounds and symbols like, like, there's no C in IPA. Like, if it's cat, it's K-A-T, mm-hmm. you know, because it's, it's It's almost a very... like you wish English was written that way. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it'd be a lot easier, actually. And uh, so then you have to do that. So there's, there's, but so, so also you have to train in IPA. There's a mastery to that. Training in these languages, German, French, Italian, French is very difficult. And the idea of singing in French is not the same as speaking in French. So we don't necessarily take language classes to become fluent. We take classes that's focused on teaching a singer how to sing French. Mm. So it's it that's the classes that I would take. So there would be a woman or a man, and they would know the language, and I'd come in and sing a French song or a French aria, yeah. and they would help me with the French as per the singing, not necessarily we're going to conjugate verbs, Right. So if that makes sense. They're saying this word is pronounced this way you would probably sing it like yes this. because even because you the vowels still have to be pure sure all vowels are like italian vowels like you have you master the italian vowels now obviously in french they have nasal vowels but then you just put a nasal on it and you're good well like it's it still needs to be pure singing and it can it, it you know in the german people say oh german is such this uh ugly guttural language you know well i mean it's gorgeous i mean german music is is beautiful and you have to you have to love the uh the uh the uh the consonants in uh in german but just just you can't shy away from them because it's part of the language just like in english yeah but just just having that resource of a a teacher coming in and saying this is how you would pronounce this word in this foreign language yes it's it's micro 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 in compared to the macro yes as far as the actual performance right? yes so you might have been taking that class six seven eight ten times yeah um just for three performances or two performances oh yeah yeah but but but, it's, but it, it, it's it, it, it informs your entire um career because french isn't changing german isn't changing mm-hmm. you know uh now here's the thing though what will happen is like in the united states you know, we got Pittsburghese, we got a Kentucky Southern accent compared to a Texas Southern accent. You know what I mean? So what happens is uh, us American singers, you might do a, perfor- perfor- a performance in German and maybe in act one, you sound more like you're from Dusseldorf and in act two, you sound more like you're from Berlin. Now you wouldn't know that as an American probably sure. unless, you're, unless you're fluent in German or, 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 or grew up in Germany. Yeah. But for a... So, the goal of an opera singer is to be able to land in Germany, sing in German, and convince them that you know what that you're, you're doing. From the town that everybody that you're yeah. that your your German is consistent, and obviously I would sing in a pure German. You know, sure. I don't know, you know what I mean, like a standardized German. I I wouldn't aim to 
sing in a Dusseldorf accent That's or a Stuttgart so, accent that's technically. So cool. Yeah, but see, I would want to sing in a unless for some reason, like there's a, an American opera called Susanna, and it's from the South. So I used to sing an aria from it. It's in English, but you should have a Southern accent. Now I'm not saying you go up there and sound like Reba McIntyre. You know what I mean? But when you're pronouncing, you know, it's about the way people is made, I reckon. That's the that's the name of sound. It's about the way people is made, I reckon. Like, you can't sound like some guy doing voiceover, you know. Yeah. It's, it's, it's about the you're way not, people is made, I reckon. You have to have that little, that context. Because the audience is listening to you. And if you don't have that little southern yeah. accent and the way that you maybe pronounce some vowels here or there it takes them out it, but, of the show but it goes it goes hand in hand in preparation you yeah. know just so that you can nail the pronunciation so you sound like a local mm-hmm. it goes hand in hand with saying okay so i'm performing in this section of, of the country of italy or yeah. the country of germany um i need to understand the dialect here yeah so like my wife is from england I've spent many years in England now because of her, and I'm getting a bit better at being able to pinpoint where an accent is from because oh. England has oh. so many oh, accents. Oh, so and many. And I'm obviously lumping the entirety of the UK and some of the surrounding islands, if you will. Oh, yeah. you'll see, you'll hear them and you'll see them yeah. in England. I mean, so there's a very distinct Welsh accent, mm-hmm. obviously a very distinct Scottish accent. Yep. Two, there's two really d- distinct Irish accents. Obviously, England itself has many whether you're in London mm-hmm. or you're super posh, super yeah, south, yeah, or you make your way f- uh, towards the north, where yeah. you become more and more common and more working class. I mean, yeah. working class, but you get what I'm. Yeah, what I'm no, saying. I understand. Yeah, no, yeah, England has a lot of. But and yeah. actually, what's interesting is, um, so there's received pronunciation, which is the kind of BBC British news how they speak. Yeah. Then there's standard American, which is the standard kind of English, which is kind of how I talk on the show. Sure. It's kind of radio voice, standard English that pretty much it's not, anyone... It's not necessarily the transatlantic voice that no. they had and then back it, in... It's called mid-Atlantic. That's it. That's it. I'm sorry. Not so then I have to learn standard American, RP, which is it, which is British, and then mid-Atlantic, which was a English dialect created, I believe, in World War One. So Americans and the British could understand each other because they were allies. Now, a lot of people think Mid-Atlantic because we in the United States have the Mid-Atlantic states, which is Pennsylvania, you know, like New Jersey. No, it's Mid-Atlantic as in this combination of American and British pronunciation. And that is usually used in what's called oratorio, which is um, like the uh, Messiah, where it's this classical piece of music with a choir, with soloists, with orchestra, but you just stand on stage in tuxedos. You know, there's no, oh, so, there's no so staging. It's still used. Oh, oratorio. Yeah, I sing a lot of oratorio. Yeah, the Messiah. Oh my God, the mess. Every Christmas, you could okay. you trip over a Messiah's. <laughs> oh my, and especially in New York, every little church has, you know, every valley. Everyone's doing it. Oh yeah, oratorio is. Uh, you actually, oratorio in my opinion, usually isn't as, quote, hard as opera. Yeah. First off, you, you get to use your your music. However, I have to say, by the end of all the rehearsals, you've pretty much had it memorized, but you have the music there because it's a very kind of broad piece of music with an orchestra, with a choir, with soloists, you know, duets, quartets, all kind of different stuff going on. 
So actually having a your score there is 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 nice. Right. Um but yeah, Oratorio is still a big and, and that should be typically sung with with the Mid-Atlantic. Not quite American, not quite British. This kind of in between. So if you want to talk about mastery in opera, it's a long road. It's a long road. And it's multiple hours, which yes. I'm fine with. But. And my my <laughs> biggest plateau in opera was the frustration over getting a solid high B flat. Okay. Which is very, a very well, specific note. Then. Very, very important to have. Um, Would you say that some of the music that you chose specifically had that in it or had it multiple times where you were hitting that key or you needed to hit that specific so key? So basically early on in my opera career, I had to avoid it because it was such an, um, it was such a, <laughs> yes, it, 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 it was not a secure note mm. and I did not want to go into auditions and, you know, splat basically. I would rather go and sing an aria that I had confidence in that didn't have that. That for me at the time was a high note. Now it's it's attainable. Now it's the high B, which has become more attainable. And then my high C, which is the money note, the note that made Pavarotti famous, you know, the note that every tenor wants. Mine is not really, but I developed in what's called a Helden tenor, or a younger Leishan, a younger Leisher Helden tenor, a kind of more Germanic heroic voice, a little louder, a little bigger, a little heavier. Um, sometimes not necessarily baritonal in quality, but a little bit of a, you know, not kind of a high, high, high tenor. So I don't really need a high C. Most of my rep doesn't call for it, but a high B. So I had this long plateau where a B flat just was not, not happening. And you have doubt that maybe I should go back to school. Maybe I should go be a doctor. I don't know. I mean, my, I don't know. Maybe I should be a lawyer or something. Mine, mine was just before I switched careers, mm-hmm. uh, which is how I got to my, what we talked about earlier, how I got to that whole, um, you know, imposter syndrome. And mine was, I just like your C note, Yeah, mine was certain functions in Excel. It's super nerdy. Yeah. I would stop my work. I would purposefully email it like 4.30, 4.35. I need a little bit more time because I can't, I can't figure this out. And I would just take my laptop home and, and Google it. Sure. Yeah. And, and I was doing it more and more and more and I felt yeah. like a failure. So yeah. I gave up. And that's not, the, and I realize in hindsight, that's not the way to go. Yeah. Um, I should have embraced the fact that I don't know and spend more time taking baby steps to get there. So yeah. you couldn't hit C. Yeah. So you specifically cherry picked music to avoid it. And it's like, mm. yeah, well, we'll see. This is the issue is that um, when I agree to sing something, it happens in public in front of people. Right. Okay. And, so there is there is a weight to it. And the thing about singing is you don't have one job where you go to the same building and you have health insurance or you know and you get a you know stipend for your car or something. You know what I mean? <laughs> you are you are moving around. You're always auditioning. Like imagine if you had to interview for your job every 3 months. Yikes. You know, okay. like think about that. That's Now I know there's like there's like uh progress or um um you know there might be like a review of your job. You know, like every so often you might, what do they call those? Like, uh, you know, where someone, you know, looks over what, what you've been doing. Performance review. There it is. Performance um, review. Okay. So you definitely have those, but I lose my job every few months and I have to go find another one. Right. So when I'm on stage performing, if I've picked a role that's way out of my league and I suck, well, you're only as good as your last show. Okay. That's one. You know what I mean? Yeah. Whoever sees you on stage, 
and you're not good because you've selected the wrong re- repertoire, that's the taste that you've left in their mouth. Yeah. And they could be a casting director. They could be a cellist. Who knows a casting director? They could be, you know, a violinist in some orchestra who might go to their opera company that they work for and say, hey, I saw this guy, Mike. He was fantastic. Yeah. Why, why isn't he in, like, one of our shows? You could also argue that um, you get to a certain point in your career where you might have a... Um, uh, a personal director or somebody that manages yes. your schedule well, for you. I did have a manager. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, and, and uh, unless your manager is ultra in tune with your capabilities, yes. meaning that they want you to over succeed what they intent in initially thought you would get to. So somebody yeah. who's willing to take you beyond their imagination, yeah. unless you find somebody like that, they might inadvertently continuously give you the wrong music to perform and you end up damaging yourself, yes. and, you, and you think that you're doing something wrong because yeah. you've put all your faith in somebody that is selecting the wrong music. So somebody will give you C's only. Right? Yeah, give yeah, you, yeah. Give you music that, that had that every single night. You're like, I can't, yeah. I'm so not like, ready for that. If, if, so my manager was an opera singer, and he was a tenor, and he did have a career, and now he has a, a, a firm, you know, like an agency. So he understands opera completely, understands, you know, my voice, you know what I mean, and obviously never steered me wrong. But like, if he said, Mike, I got you La Fille de Regiment in France, okay, the Daughters of the Regiment, that's what La Fille de Regiment means, very famous opera, it has a tenor aria with nine high C's, okay, unbelievably high, like, most arias have one, it's the money note at the end, it's what, it's what you're really paid to do, you know, this, that's the climax, Pavarotti that's made, that's what made his career, he, he went on stage, his nine high C's were like nothing, Hmm. And he, because when when it was written, they're supposed to be like like a yodels, kind of like a yodel. He held them. Ooh. No one ever heard that. I'm like, what? He just held it forever. You know what I mean? If my manager said, Michael, you're gonna do La Fille de Regiment in France next summer, I'd be like, you're nuts. I would say no, because at the end of the day, I understand you're you're like, because he talks about like this like, like the edge, mm-hmm. right? Is one of the things where you know this concept of knowing your physical capabilities but trying to reach them as a way to kind of push yourself forward yep. unfortunately with singing that could be dangerous of course. Like, you know physically it could be damaging, yeah. could be it could be damaging. damaging not only to me physically but to my career because if i go out there and splat all those high c's and just totally just not even remotely be qualified to do it it's just I'll never get like hired again. Right. You just dig yourself into a hole because you're in front of an audience. It it happened. It happened. Yeah, you know, you're you're there's critics, there's reviews, mm-hmm. there's other opera singers, there's other directors, other managers, you know, uh, someone now we have these cell phones. It, it, it could be on TikTok, listen to this guy like like like, like, like he can't sing. There's all, <laughs> but also even though if you have a manager and an agent and all these teachers this is your instrument, right? And you have to guard it and know, I'm not ready for this. It's it's something similar happened with um some bands that um are traveling from overseas into the United States, yeah. Especially during COVID and um obviously very uh, tumultuous time, yeah. So we'll kind of preface that with that. And for a singer to take a day off from performing because they're not well, um, for the longest time was considered. Um, in some of the music channels and forums that I follow, like how could they do that? All you have to do is stand on stage and and scream. Like, come on! No, 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 now, no, no, no. There, there no. gets to a certain point in anybody's career, whether it's working in Excel or singing, where I I'm not going to slum it for the sake of 
just doing another performance. Yeah. I need to take care of myself. I need to I need to make sure that mentally, physically, emotionally I'm here. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, speaking of singers a lot like being being an an athlete. Our our bodies are our instrument um and uh you know, you don't try to throw a 75-yard yeah. pass. You perfect 15, then 30, yeah. then 45. You 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 rarely hurt your voice when you're healthy. It's when you go and say, "Okay, I'm fine." You get caught. I need I need to go perform. When you get obsessive and you get crazy and you know you're sick, you know you have a scratch in your throat and you sing anyway, mm-hmm. that's usually when you hurt hurt yourself. I'm talking about like nodes, vocal hemorrhages, sure. things of that nature, scary stuff. Oh, they, they teach yeah. you about this in well, school. The stuff that you have to get surgeries for. Oh, and yeah. Out from oh, months and, and months and months. Vocal surgery is so scary. And it's scary because to sing, all you need... Well, what what you need to sing to phonate? Phonate is anytime I'm we're phonating right now. Right. Anytime you make noise with, it's a, with your, the reverberations that our mind yeah, understands right. as language. You when you phonate, you need the top layer of your chords only, right? You know, so they're the most important. And when you get vocal surgery and stuff, one wrong move and that that top layer gets damaged, you're done. Mm-hmm. So there used to be a lot of vocal surgery. Now they put you through a lot of vocal therapy first before. I mean, if you're a singer like me, if you're a professional singer where your voice is your livelihood, they're not just going to start cutting stuff right away. So if I had a node, right, a little bump, little, you know, on the cord, little swelling, I would opt for months of vocal therapy before ever going under the knife. Yeah. Yeah. I think on the on the road to mastery and that's why i loved this book and I'm yeah like, I, I jumped into chance i'm like i i know somebody that has a podcast he talks yeah. about some really great topics and that's why i pitched it to you because the way this book and it's like i said it's 176 pages yeah it's, it's small not, form factor so yeah it, it really you know when you held it up earlier i was like oh yeah i remember it, it is really small yes the, the physical uh, uh size of the book is is very um very small and i like i said i read it in one day and it resonated because I found all the failures that I did and all the different um, pressure points that I felt along the way getting to where I am now written in a book that was written 31 years ago speak to me. It was, like, it was written for me. Yeah. And I was, I'm hoping that other people can get the same kind of guidance that I got from that book. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, guys, there. I mean, this is. I mean, I don't know. You want to call it a self help book, or yeah, it's weird. Or, yeah, or whatever you want to call it. Doesn't it doesn't quite fit into a self help book because yeah. it's not. It's not. You can do it. Yeah, it's not. And although the actually his message is, it's hard. It is hard, and you're going to spend a lot of time on these plateaus, yeah, and you're going to mess up a lot of times. Yeah, and that's and, the beauty and, of and it. And it's not going to be fun because all you want to do is become a scratch golfer, or win that tennis match, or sure. shoot twenty five straight. That took me months and months mm-hmm. of failing at not getting twenty five, getting twenty fours, failing for different reasons each time. Yes, and, it, and not understanding why you're failing. Yeah, and you know what? It wasn't easy. Like, oh, I always so there's eight stations, right, where you move around like in a half mm-hmm. circle. It's not like it was only station three. Right. I, I could get, I can ace station three and then screw up four and then screw up three and then screw up four. So in a way, it was like not always the same problem. And that's why it took so, and I had to ride these plateaus. Of course. 
And I had no idea it was a plateau. Like, like, like you know what I mean? Like, right. if I would have holding it, the book, as if ho- it, it was I'm, it was an axe, it was a key. Yes, this it, it's like when I was reading this, I was thinking about these things that I've done. The plateau of not having a B flat, mm-hmm. but keep going to lessons, keep practicing, keep being in shows, yeah. picking the proper rep that you're confident with. But while I might be singing the rep on stage that doesn't have the B flat, the rep that I have in my practice room only has B flats, mm-hmm. all the arias, because I'm trying and trying. But you have to build the muscle, the, the uh, structure around the, you have to. Don't give up on the practice. Yes, it's yeah. all about the, uh, the, uh, the uh, practice. You, you sometimes would um, perform poorly at station one, then maybe at three, and then five. Yes. It, it could happen while you're holding the car keys on the way to practice, yes. where you could have that. Um, realization am i why am i even doing this yeah and that's that's kind of like not the worst feeling but that feeling hits on a level that is almost impossible to crawl out of unless you had the keys to understand this is a plateau and the reason why it's happening is clearly laid out in that book yeah and that's why it was fast yeah you know and there's also this thing of okay so for a right-handed shooter station two is one of the most most difficult is this in all in all of them or just in this particular one that you go to no no no, in all skeet games okay because they're all the same i mean it's a standardized sport oh like i I said the speed of the bird should be the same the the angle how like how big the half circle is how far away the high and low houses are Mm. there's a whole there's there's a standardization of it i did so If I so when you shoot these registered birds, as I talked about, and you shoot in competition, no matter where you go in Pennsylvania, it is meant to be the same experience. It's meant to be the same because it's all about consistency. Because if every skeet field's different, it's like every golf course is like different. Yeah, but that's more about your swing, Hmm. not necessarily the course being different. In skeet shooting, you have to have a consistency of of uh of of the skeet field. Okay, it's in a game called sporting clays, which is like golf with a shotgun. So sporting clays is where you have, I don't know, 20 different stations on like a path. You're actually in a golf cart. It has a rack for for your shotgun and you go to station to station and you're just aimed out like into the woods and the birds like come out of a tree. They come out up. There might be a rabbit going along the road. So that's a sport much more like golf where there's inconsistency. Every time you go to Seven Springs to do a sporting clays, it's, it could be different. Interesting. Station one could be different from the last weekend because that's the whole point of the game. If you said, Michael, I want you to teach me how to shoot a shotgun, yeah. we would not go sporting clays. We would not clays. start there. No. no. Of course. Sporting clays, in my opinion, is for someone who's already somewhat mastered skeet or trap or like five stand. Sure. They, they have control of the gun. They understand leads. They understand don't stop moving. They understand the fundamentals of the skill. And then sporting clays is when it's like, you know what? I want This is really the next level. Because when you stand at that station, you have to figure out how to shoot those birds right then and there. Mm. There's no like, oh, it's a three-foot lead, a four. You need to gauge it. Yeah. Because you're you're using muscle memory to the max. All the skill, all the... All the stuff that you've learned on a more controlled field, like seed or trap, mm-hmm. you now have to take and think, okay, that is like a station two bird, and that's more like a trap bird. So I'm going to use the fundamentals of skeet for the first one and the fundamentals of trap f- for the second one. Mm-hmm. But if you don't have that foundation, like recall game. If you don't have that foundation, you're going to have a miserable afternoon on a sporting place field. It, it's um, it, it, I was sim I, when I 
when I was talking about how I had issues with Excel and whatnot, I what I did was eventually I got to a point where I specifically uh, took initiative on asking for more uh, troubles to troubleshoot, so more issues yeah. to fix yeah. within Excel, just so that I can expose myself to different, if you will, stations yeah. where it the the birds coming at a different angle or mm-hmm. it's you know the um the platform that the what's the machine that shoots it out what's it called a, a trap machine okay, actually so a, a trap it's machine called a trap machine 6 inches higher than you're accustomed to yeah. uh, maybe 13 feet away from you or something or yeah. wh- whatever it may be um but because you had experience somewhere else with doing something that was very similar you can then your body knows what to do yeah and, and it and it's why um i feel very very fortunate that there are times where people in my work right now will come and ask me for help with Excel because I had to do all that backlog of figuring out stuff yeah. where I got to a point where I can most of the time without sounding arrogant, fix people's Excel issues. Or yeah. You that, know, it doesn't get, it doesn't get to, I don't get to that overnight. You know, it's interesting because in music, you know, when you go to music school, it's school, right? It's just not, you sing every class, mm-hmm. you know, something called music theory, and music yeah. theory is where does the, the note sit on the line? Yeah, what does it look like? Music theory is the math of music. Let's say it's how music is uh, structured. And in college, I was not very good at at music theory. I was a jazz drummer and an opera singer. I rarely had to use, and even I even when I when I would go to jazz camps during like the music theory classes, they would pull the drummers, and we'd have drum theory classes. <laughs> so when I read a jazz chart. You, you, have you ever seen a drumming jazz chart? I went to there, I went to percussion for four years. No, there's X's and 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 notes. Well, why is there a note? Well, that's actually the that note is the snare drum. That note is the bass drum. That X is this symbol. Yeah, this is so, a, this is a flam. This exactly. So you learn drum theory. So they're learning E minor diminished seven, and I'm learning how to use who use brushes mm-hmm. on my snare drum. Like I, I, you know what I mean. So and then as an opera singer. I'm not thinking about really where I am in the key. I just know my note is here. Now, as you get more advanced, you might just subconsciously know that I'm on the fifth, uh, like like the core, you know, sure. of the scale. But you know, music theory was not one of my strong points. And when I got to my master's, and I was able to get through it through my uh, bachelor's, but when I got to my master's degree, I'm at another level now. You know, this is like pro. We're this is we're, serious now. We're we're getting pro level. You know, we're approaching that. And I got to the point where people were coming to me for help. Yeah. And it doesn't. It, and it, it's and almost like at I, times it happens organically. Yes. You didn't ask for it. No. No. And like, oh, I guess people actually think that I know what I'm doing. And yeah. I, I'm still working my way I, through it. I had to work like kind of tw- not on maybe twice as hard, you know, maybe as others, sure. just to because you started later or no. It's just my musical my my music theory. Uh, I mean, you didn't take it seriously at first. Then let, let's let's put it this way. <laughs> when I got to college, so when you audition for a music school, either before you get accepted or after you get accepted, you will take a theory exam so they can place you properly. Mm-hmm. So when I got to college, so when I when I applied to Duquesne, the theory exam was part of the audition process. But when I went to Lawrence University, um, they they accepted me just based on my um, audition. And then, like, well, we'll just teach you theory. So then, so when I got there, like the first week of school, I took a theory exam, and I did so poorly, I was put in fundamentals theory, oh which we called fun fundamentals. Yikes! And 
bit of an ego. Like literally, uh, yes, literally the first class was all right. Um, okay, so this is called a staff, and this th- this little circle's a note, and then this is what a treble. You know, this is this is the bass clef symbol, and I'm like, and I've been playing piano since I was five. I know, and I'm like, oh my god, Mike, because what have I done? I I just didn't in college. I just didn't focus on it enough. Mm-hmm. But then in you know or you know, and then in, so I was in fun fundamentals, and I'm sorry, I didn't really focus it before college on it a lot. So when I got to college, I was in fun fundamentals, and then when I got to my masters. Uh, I forget what we did. If we did like a theory exam or what, I think everyone just kind of started like at the same level, mm. like just musical, you know, mu- music theory. But there I was like, okay, I knew my experience in college. I sucked at it. Now we, we got to figure out how to be good at it. Yeah. You actually have to take I was, notes. <laughs> I was also older and more, more a mature, you know, there's also like, like a, like a maturity level thing here. But, you know, when people were asking, Mike, can you help me with my music theory? I'm thinking, I'm the last person. Are you, like, are you kidding me? Like, <laughs> I'm the last person. But I guess in class, they see my effort or I ask questions. Yeah. Or if he says, you know, you know, write this chord progression out on the board, I, I nail it because I've studied. Because, you know, I'm focusing on it. it, it yeah. it's, almost, it's almost like when you got to college, and I, I joke about this, and it's not joking because it's, it's still serious. Um, it's almost like you didn't have a five-year plan. Yeah. And then when you got to college, you're like, okay, I really actually have to nail this in order for me to get yeah. to the to the, the four, four and a half years later. When I hit five, I know yeah. that this was important, so I, I'm using it now. Yeah, because at the end of the day, you don't need a degree to sing opera. Okay, Pavarotti didn't have a master's degree in opera. Sure. But this is a different... See, my master's degree... Uh, it's like it, 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 what, That piece of paper is great to have on my wall here. But getting that degree was much more about if I didn't go to the Manhattan School of Music for my master's, I would have never sung in Italy. I would have never sung in San Francisco. I would have never had my manager. Now, maybe I would have taken a different path. Sure. But there's all these things that happened in my life and career that were a result of going there, meeting these people. You know what I mean? Yeah, like Understanding that steps, those steps brought you to that. Yes. Like my teacher who taught... Um, the English IPA courses, like I was talking about, reserve yep. pr- uh, pronunciation, or, or I'm, I'm received pronunciation, all that. She literally wrote the book on this. Oh, wow. Like, it's literally, like, that's, her textbook. That's so funny because Like, my, she's the authority. My drum teacher was um, Roger Humphreys. Same. So. Not a joke. So. I met Roger at the Duquesne Jazz Camp. Yeah. He was my, he was my high school teacher for three and a half years. Yeah. And I went up to him. And I was like in awe of this guy. Yeah, he's great. For he's those who amazing. don't know, Roger Humphreys is a local Pittsburgh jazz legend. If you open up any textbook about jazz where drummers are featured, yeah. there is an incredibly strong likelihood that Roger Humphreys will be there. And yeah. to have access to somebody yeah. like that at the age of 13 and a half, 14. Yeah, unbelievable. It's oh, so awesome. Talk about mastery. Talk, <laughs> talk this, about, this is you know. Somebody, this is somebody who sat behind the drum set and just oozed confidence yes. and was so stylish. Yeah. Uh, not necessarily just with his playing, just with his emotions. Yeah. Um, anyways, so... Well, I... I, yes. I, I just I, like I, she wrote the book, yes. this guy was in the book. Yes. I I approached him and said, excuse me, Mr. Humphreys, I'm looking for... Um, so I was really at that point just learning how to play jazz by, by ear, 
when I got to high school, I was in concert band, you know, smashing the cymbals together, playing the snare. <laughs> you were and, proper percussion. Exactly. And I don't know what in me, what, how I played the snare or hit the cymbals together made the, made the band director ask me if I knew how to play jazz. <laughs> something. He saw something in me. I said, no, I've never played jazz. Jazz hands. That's maybe, <laughs> maybe. He goes, well, come to my office after school. So I, so I go to his office. He goes, here's a Buddy Rich CD. Here's a uh, Max, Max Roach. Yeah, Max Roach CD, Art Blakey, all, all the great jazz drivers. Go and listen to them. And we have a jazz band and a jazz combo. I think this is something that you could do. So I was playing by ear at that point. And I, but I really wanted to maybe, I mean, the, the jazz camp is fine, but it's only a couple of weeks, like in the summer. I, I, I really wanted to learn how to play jazz. Just mm -hmm. like, how, how do you do the job, you know? And, and I said, Mr. Humphreys, I'd like to, you know, find a teacher. Do you have any recommendations? He goes, well, take down my, my, my number and I, and, and I can teach you. And I was like, really? <laughs> I mean, I, really? I was like, I, I'm not, I'm not worthy. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I, I, I didn't expect Wayne's that. At, I didn't expect yeah. that at all, you know, like yeah. swing. And anyway, it's a Wayne's World, though. Wait, a, 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 Wayne's it. World reference. We're, don't, we're... don't, don't copyright. No, no copyright strikes. I promise. Uh, it, it's so cool, cool. guy. It, cool guy. It, he's incredible. Yeah. Um, I don't know if he's still actively teaching. I've been so I, far I, removed. I, yeah, same. I have no idea. Um, but definitely feel I feel very fortunate yes. to have had that backing, that yeah. schooling from him. That was a great jazz camp, by the way, Duquesne back in the day camp sounds like a really good time then yeah it was it you 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 you're playing with a lot of different people um meeting a lot of different people meeting great players who are now older you know like who used to play with like uh um with uh trumpet player famous super famous oh my gosh um you know Armstrong, no? No, 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 no. Not Louis more 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 contemporary than Louis Armstrong. Miles Davis. Miles Davis. Okay, oh so God, anyway. So jazz car revoked. Yes. Yeah, literally I have to send it back in. <laughs> That's it. So Miles Davis. So there was a teacher at this jazz camp who used to play with like Miles Davis. He was also a, a trumpet player and he called Doc Williams, I believe. Or Doc Wilson, maybe, something okay. like that. And you hear the stories and, I'm, you know, I'm again, like, like, in, like in like high school and it's unbelievable that, you know, um, these, these guys are, are not that far removed from, you know, an Art Blakey or a Miles Davis mm -hmm. or they're, they're in the, they're in the same career boat. It's unbelievable. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And what's, what's cool, I guess, if you will, you get to a certain point in your own life, in your own kind of maturity, where you realize they're still on the mastery trajectory. Oh, yes. But they're teaching their ways. Yes. And they're still perfecting. So every time they show you, okay, this is how you do a, a, a flam stroke or, yes. or a paradiddle. And you got to hold your sticks like this. And every time it balances, you got to feel the weight of this, whatever it may be, yeah. however they want to teach it, that still is part of that mastery trajectory because they're still bestowing all that information on you. So yeah. in that process, they're becoming even bigger of a master. Oh, yeah. So I had a couple students when I was in New York. You got to make, make money. Well, yeah. <laughs> and, it, and I realized that I had to explain to them how to sing. Okay. Well, I, I, know, I know how to sing, but I've been singing since I was seven years old. There are things that I do. I don't even know how I do them. Like, they, they, I'm just, not, they just happen. It just happens. Okay, so now I have to figure out how to explain to them what's happening in my throat, 
what's happening with my soft palate, mm-hmm. what's happening with resonance, like we talked about, like into the mask. Where am I breathing? Mm-hmm. You don't breathe into your chest. You breathe up into your stomach and into your lower back. How my legs are, you know, how I'm standing. These are all these things that I don't necessarily think about much anymore. And it makes me a better singer because it makes me aware. Kona is trying to make out with the <laughs> Dean right now. Uh, and I stopped scratching. Her. Yeah. Yep. And now she wants back in, and you know, she's like, she's crawling into yes, my lap. Yeah. So, um, yeah, there's there, you know, so even though, you know, like, like, uh, George Leonard says, mastery is a lifelong process. Mm-hmm. Um, however, I, I, you know, like he was talking about when he, you know, was doing Aikido, he never thought he would be a black belt, but then they're just now, and then he ended up being a fifth degree black belt. So it's like, there's just this, you know, and then he has had his own dojo, you know, and it's like, you realize after all this practice, all this time spent that you get to a point where you do have a certain level of uh, ability that can be passed mm-hmm. down to someone who's more early on their path to, 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 to I mastery. You, I guess you could call it almost a responsibility. Yeah, because sure. If you, if so, if you gave up on opera altogether, yeah. You literally not necessarily throw away all that time and all of those plateaus and all those internal monologues you have to yeah. yourself thrown out the window. And now uh, you could say, for lack of better words, that it's giving up, mm-hmm. but maybe not necessarily opera singing is going to be the next trajectory or the next mastery course, but maybe um, singing and teaching to sing in different languages yeah. will be your forte. Uh, just, yeah. just throwing something sure. into the wind here. Yeah. Um, so it's, it, I, I guess part of this this revelation that I had with this book is that it's not that there is a ro- there's only right answers. There's mm-hmm. just answers all over the map. Oh yeah. It's just a matter of finding the ones that resonate with you. Yeah. Um, and part of the plateau or part of the mastery is learning about those plateaus, which is why I'm glad I'm glad that it resonated with you too. Yes. About opera and I'm like, yeah, oh, I get it. And when I was in New York and I was feeling this, it's it was like that. Yes. Oh yeah. And the thing about, you know, you know, I might try to hit a so again, when you are your instrument, how you're how your mouth is shaped can literally help you hit a note or not or something, you know, and I might try to sing that B flat with one kind of jaw position and mouth opening. And then I'm going to try a different one. And, or maybe I I watch Pavarotti hit a B flat. All right. Well, that's what his face looks like. Yeah. Maybe if I mimic that, you're practicing the mirror without, without noise. Yeah. Yeah. Just, yeah. There's all kind of like, should I raise my cheeks or squint my eye? Listen, this all sounds bizarre, but when you watch a master, like so, maestro. You know how they're called maestro. That's just Italian for a master. So, maestro Pavarotti. You're calling him Master Pavarotti. He's he's mastered. Like the the moment that someone says maestro to you, mm-hmm. you know that you've hit a level. I mean that if everyone said maestro Papinchuk, I I would I would I'd cry. You know what I mean? That'd be like amazing, <laughs> right? Like 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 an opera context. I'm gonna get you a mug. Yeah, this is my. <laughs> That's coming you know, but, in the mail. But that just means that you might not know it, but other people are perceiving you that way. So I might say, okay, I'm, ha- I'm struggling with this B-flat. Maybe maybe it's with my articulators. Maybe there's an issue with my physical, uh, how I'm physically trying to do it. Mm. So you might mimic Pavarotti. And again, you don't know what his larynx is doing but because you're not inside, but you can see his face and you know he has a certain look. 
okay, about Jonas Kaufman, another famous tenor. Well, he does his B flat this way, or maybe he takes his breath. Yeah, maybe at a certain point before. Yeah, yeah. And he's actually not hitting it a certain. So level. jazz drummers, you know, talk about, um, and Roger Humphreys talked about. You know, he would listen to this Max Roach record, right? And he could never figure out a certain fill. How was Max doing that? It wasn't until he saw Max Roach in concert just play that song and do that fill. He saw how he moved his hands. And, cause and, and then he got it. Listening is, can, can, jazz is all about listening. But sometimes it only goes so far. You got to watch the person do it. My favorite thing about Roger Humphreys when he was teaching us, and this is like totally a throwback, but my favorite thing is it's the first drummer that taught me mm-hmm. with using his mouth. Just hit it like, yeah. Like, wait, just, yeah. just sing what I'm singing, yes. but then do it with your hands. Yeah. Huh? Well, yeah. What? That's incredible. And, and and he would teach like that at times. Yeah. I was like, no, no, no. Just li- listen to it. Ba-da-ba. And he would just, he would clap his hands. Yeah. Like, and, I was like, and he would make everybody in the room clap their hands yeah. on beat. And wait, oh, okay. This sounds it's, childish. But no, because like it's, it's, it's that, it's that it's muscle in, memory. It's in your head, you know, like, um, you know, he, we've talked about, you know, in the book, it's this idea of like, uh, um, intentionality uh visualizing and let's say golf because he he mentions golf i think jack 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 nicholas you know he was so successful because he visualized the 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 stroke he visualized how the ball is gonna go visualized how it's gonna land before he even approached the ball or did a practice swing all this is being visualized so it's like let's say the uh, soprano is singing i got a big high note coming I'm I've I've sung that high note in my head a hundred times while she's singing. I'm obviously in, still engaged as a performer. I'm not like yeah. zoned out, but in my mind, I'm inside singing that note. Kind of like yeah. I'm preparing my instrument to do it. It's it's almost like uh, your your brain is mimicking her words because you're leading yourself yes. up, and you're you're almost like. Um, it's almost like you're you're in the process of putting your shoes on so that you can plant them on the floor when yeah. your when your cue is up. Yes, and you know the great thing about doing a full opera is a lot of times the emotion, kind of um, the character, because mm-hmm. you know singing doesn't always have to be perfect. Okay, like sometimes I'm not talking about you crack a note or you sing flat, but and you know you should always sing well and uh, like obviously and my teachers like it has to sound sexy no matter like what you sing it has to sound good right but you know when i was doing carmen and i'm and carmen and don jose fight at the end of the opera and don jose kills carmen stabs her and kills her okay that's a pretty emotional it's pretty dramatic. wild dramatic thing so you know if when I'm angry, because obviously I didn't kill her happily. I was very angry. <laughs> oh, you didn't enjoy it? Then? Yeah, you know. You know, sometimes if a note is kind of a little weird, but if it's an anger moment, you know what I mean? Like, I'm not saying it's weird as I'm producing it poor. Like, I'm not phonating properly. But just how you perceive it as an audience. Well, that that note wasn't as pretty, but it's because he's he's about to kill her. He's like, really? So there are, there are times like that in opera where the emotion really like oh like it's uh it's almost like it, uh, it propels it, over, it overshadows everything else and because it propels, it's more important yes it propels the voice and just like in acting you know when when you're when you're acting and someone and you're reacting to what they're saying you know if they're yelling at you and you're 
like have a totally different affect, the scene isn't isn't jiving, right? Not yeah. to say you have to have a screaming match, but I'm just saying, like, if you're not responding to what they're giving to you, opera's the same way. Yeah. Uh, it's a little different because we're singing and there's music, but like, you know, when and that the, and I feel like the acting is also because you're singing. Yeah. Uh, it's not as dancey. It's not as flashy. It's a no. lot more romantic. Yeah. Yeah. Um, at opera's broad because general, like yeah. literally at the end of the opera Verter, he like shoots himself and then sings like a half hour duet. Okay. Well, in real life, he'd be dead. So, but. <laughs> But it's opera. It's you know not, what I mean? Not, this isn't real life. This isn't real life. So, you know, everything in opera is kind of stretched out because singing is a stretched out form of speaking. Mm-hmm. And you could literally be dying, but you sing a half hour, you know, duet or, or something. I mean, that, I'm not you saying would, a half yeah. hour, you know. But you would never get to this level of understanding yeah. every facet of opera without having spent those countless hours doing the most mundane of stuff like yes. learning the language yes. understanding okay in this particular opera somebody's going to be killed and yeah. i'm the one killing yes so i need to understand why it's happening yeah. why the contention's happening and i need to know every possible aspect about the show including the costumes who i am what yes. my profession is yeah. whatever yeah so carmen is based on uh on a novella okay so i don't I don't know if I if I read it, but you know that could be part of your of your trying to master that that role. Yeah, you might read the read, book. Read yeah. the book because a lot of times operas are based on books, and then someone writes a libretto, and then it uh, you know it becomes an opera. Yeah, like, like you know what I mean. So gosh, she's such a goofball, isn't she? Yeah, she. What you can't see. Yeah. Is while we're talking. She keeps readjusting herself so that my hand scratches a different part of her body. Yes. Oh, yeah. She's uh, she has no shame she at is, all. She is an attention seeking yes. dog, and so is my dog. Yes. It's okay. Yeah. Or, she is in good company. Oh, yes. Yeah. So yeah. So like you know, there's. I mean, no, I don't think a lot of people like read the book Lava Wham, Lava, but you know, it there is it is good to at least read the Wikipedia article. I don't sure. know. Look up the Carmen novella. Who wrote it? When was it written? How is it different from the opera? Like, um, I, you know, I definitely did something because I knew a background of my character, Don Jose, Mm -hmm. that I believe in the novel, he actually killed someone in his village, escaped to the Spanish army, and then met Carmen as a prostitute in in Seville, Spain. So Mm. him killing her at the end is a surprise to you because you don't know that so I guess Bizet just kind of left that out because it would kind of not ruin the ending, but, oh, he already it's killed... To, it's supposed to be a shock. Yeah, he already killed someone else. So him killing Carmen's not that big of a deal. So if, so if, like, if the show opened with me killing someone and then going into the army, uh, and then Carmen's death yeah. isn't that big of a thing. So for dramatic purposes, that's, that's left, left out. out. But even though I don't ever express it in the show, I know as a character... That you've I've done al- it before. I've already killed someone. You've you've got all the skills needed to to perform yes. again. I'm in the army mm. to escape prosecution or whatever it would have been back then to escape being hung in the town square. I'm I'm hiding away in the Spanish army. It's a French opera, but it takes place in Spain. Sure. And uh, and so and then f- becoming you know, Don Don Jose doesn't just fall in love with Carmen. He becomes infatuated. And he goes to jail for her. There's this whole th- story. And when he gets out of jail, she's moved on to someone. She's, she's a prostitute. 
See, my my teacher said the show really should be called Don Jose because Carmen stays the same. She she never changes. Okay. She's the same character um, throughout. She uses people. She's a prostitute. She's kind of on the lower level of things. Don Jose in the opera goes from some guy in the military to going to jail for a woman and then killing her. Right. He has the so, real very, character very interesting arc. arc yeah. He has the arc. And um, so, but... You need to have all of that. Yeah, it, you have to have all that inside of you. Other, otherwise, otherwise, it's just a flat performance. I was just going to say it is just another performance. Yeah. Versus this is, uh, I, I wish in English there was yeah. a, the word between a performance and a performance. Yes. Like we just don't have the language for that. Yeah. Um, but you get it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And 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 people. And, and it translates to the audience. Mm, it, 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 it An audience member will know that person is performing at a level where they've done their homework. Or they meet you after the show and they go, I'm sorry, I can't speak your language, I'm American. And you're like, yeah. wait, what? Yeah. That's how you know. Like yeah. those, those are very small, but, yeah. but very palatable indicators yeah. of true mastery. Yeah. And, it, and, they, and they bubble up to the surface at mm-hmm. weird times, but unless you have these keys and that this yeah. book talks about unless you understood it at a very microscopic level and how they intertwine and, and embed yeah. themselves in your life you would never be able to get you would yeah. never be able to have that insight yeah definitely definitely yeah and it's um another thing i wanted to mention about about the book something that i i really i really like is this he talks about gaining energy from unexpected blows this is towards like the end hmm. And something that I thought of is a long time ago, I heard this story that uh, when Thomas Edison was 67, his factories like burnt down. Okay. I, I don't know this story, so this is new to me. So this is the whole idea is, you know, let's say I had a performance, right? Actually, this, this did, ha- this did ha- um, 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 happen to me. I sang for a panel of people from four different opera companies, and they just shit all over me. Was this part of like an audition? This or? was part of a program that I was in as I was coming up. And they were just like, I left there thinking I'm never singing ever again, like, like in my life. So Thomas Edison, right? His factories are literally burning down. Instead of like being woe is me, like my life is over. Now he's like, he's 67. So, I mean, he's already lived, you know, he says, go get your mother and all her friends They'll never see a fire like like this again. Wow. It was this, you'll never see this kind of fire again. And he told the New York Times, although I'm 67 years old, I'll start over, um, I'm again tomorrow. And then it, it leads into a book called The Obstacle is the Way, The Timeless Art of Turning Trials into Triumph. Yeah. The Obstacle is the Way. That That's so cool. It's almost like, wow, my factory's burnt down. I get to rebuild them. I get to rebuild them better. better. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. But, right? But not, but not, you know? not having that support yeah. of knowing, okay, so it burning down literally your entire life's work, yes. what you became probably famous for, because yeah. um, with Thomas Edison yeah. being, uh, being an inventor of multiple different patents, exactly. your entire life's work. He could have been depressed. He could have gone into alcoholism. I no. Mean, back, I mean, what, what, we do you get... remember what years this is? What, what, oh, when boy. Was this? I don't even know. So let's just say yeah. this is in the Industrial Revolution. Yeah. Right? Buildings don't just prop up. Oh, yeah. It yeah, takes... Yeah. Many, many years and many yeah. manpower because back then, sure, they had machinery, but to build a factory wasn't yeah. wasn't a month. Exactly. Um, 
so to, for him to have the 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 insight and kind of the um the the wealth of knowledge to just say I'll just build it back better. Tomorrow. Yeah, it's like you know I I didn't fail ten thousand times. I just found ten thousand ways not to make a light bulb. It's that kind of mentality that you know you have to have when it comes to an Edison or a Musk or a Bezos or a Gates or a Steve Jobs. Mm -hmm. It's just this like no matter what, it you know two steps back could propel propel me all the way yeah. forward. You know. It's it, it it's tough because yeah. it takes a mental resilience that is out, that, that is out of control. Like yeah, it, I don't know if many people. Well, first off, many people I probably don't because if if a lot of people did, we'd have a lot of Elon Musk's out there. Yeah, you, you know what I mean. Of course. But like, it it takes a special kind of person, you know, uh, to. But what I'm trying to say is, in your life, you don't necessarily have to be a Thomas Edison or a Musk to understand the principle that obstacles. Are are there? You know, yeah. is the way. I think that's such an interesting title for for this a book. You know that 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 was referenced. The obstacle is the way. It, it, you know, speaking of Edison, somebody that's like you say about Elon Musk, and this is just a little tidbit. Um, there's a YouTuber called um, Marquez Brownlee. He goes by MKBHD. He okay. does tech reviews. He interviewed Elon Musk in his factory. So yeah, a YouTuber interviewing a CEO, well-renowned billionaire. Yeah. Um, and he said the most fascinating thing about him is when he did the tour before their discussion and Elon was able to go to every machine and know exactly what it does, how it works, what part of the chain it belongs to. Yes. And sure, I'm sure there are a lot of people, just like he said in this interview, I'm sure there are a lot of people that work at his level that know every piece of machinery, but it's not common. Yeah. Well, well, I mean, hey, he could, like, like listen, he He's could He's a big nerd. He's yes. a big, big He could nerd. easily say... You know, I'm going to hire these 10 engineers, build me a, a rocket. Yeah. Or I'm going to hire these 10 guys, go build me, I'm electric cars. And my name's going to be on it. But I don't care how you make them, just, just, just make them. No, he's, he's, in, he's, he's involved. He's, he's part of the drawing process from yeah. the start, which is so yeah. cool. Yeah, he like sleeps in his office or something. Like, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Like, he doesn't even have he's a house. He's pretty mental. Yeah, he doesn't have a house or something. <laughs> like, you know? And I mean, it's like unbelievable. The guy's unbelievable. And he's, 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 he's unstoppable. Like, there's just nothing... Nothing can like I'm, kind I'm of. A, I'm a Elon fanboy at heart. Yeah, I I have. I mean, I uh, I'm not like super uh, involved in like any of that space kind of stuff. But like, usually when when Elon gives interviews and stuff, I kind of feel like, wow, mm. you know, he he really is someone who is on his path, and there's no, there's no, there's nothing that could get him off of it. You yeah. know what I mean? He has a kind of a one track mind kind of I, thing. The, the most poetic part about Elon Musk is he said, listen, I'm going to take, I'm going to build a commercial company that's going to take humans, Joe Schmoes, into space. Watch me. Yeah. And he did it. That's and unbelievable. He, and he, it was, I think it was during, I think it was during the pandemic or maybe just before the pandemic, they had the first commercial flight that took people to space and it was, and he had volunteers from different, um, like different, um, parts of the United States. One was somebody that worked at like St. Jude's Hospital. Mm -hmm. They did a whole Netflix specials about, about Oh, that. I'll have to check it out. Yeah, it's really cool. I think it's like Journey to Space or something like that. I, I can't remember, but it's, yeah. it's great. I'll find out the title of it. Yeah. Well, man, this has been a great um, um discussion. Yeah, thank and, you. And uh, for those out there that is interest that are interested, you, I got the book, I believe, off Amazon, mm. like pretty much everything else I in my life. I went to the library like a nerd. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it is called Mastery, The Keys to Success and Long-Term Fulfillment by George Leonard. Go pick it up. 
Um, even though it was written in 1991, mm-hmm. yeah, it was published still... in 91 and had many many edits to yes. it. Yes, yeah. I mean, it's still very, you know, it's still very relevant. Yeah, and yeah. And, and thank you for uh, giving me the time to talk about it. I really appreciate the of invitation course. and of course. the hospitality. This was such a very insightful conversation. I yeah. never uh, in a million years. Uh, knew that you took opera to the level that you told yes. me, which yes. is amazing. Yeah, it was a short career. I mean, it, it, it doesn't the, matter how long it was. No, no, it was a short career. A lot of, as uh, you kind of alluded to at the beginning of the show, some family stuff, then the pandemic hit. Things so happen. there are things that happen in life that might take you off a certain path, but put you on a different one. Um, but uh, yeah, I was, uh, I, I, you know, I kind of tell people I like Forrest Gumped my way like through opera. I kind of fell ass backwards into it. It wasn't something that I was seeking. Sure. It it sought me out, but it found you. It found me and I just kind of you know was on that path yeah. and it, it kind you allowed of allowed it to consume you. Yeah. But you were happy with it consuming you because you found, you know, you found something in it. A lot of joy and a lot of cool experiences. Yeah. And it and it may not be the right thing for you now, but yeah. a it, version of yeah, it. A version, yes. I I would love to teach, but that, you know, that's a whole other podcast. Yeah. So for the next time. Yes, for the next time. So, uh, Dean, thank you so much thank for you coming. Again. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Michael Papinchak Show. Please go to tmpspodcast.com, where you'll find links to iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and YouTube. Please like, share, and subscribe.